Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets. As always, uh, you are joining us mid-conversation. Conversation within a conversation within a conversation wrapped in an enigma that is surrounded by the riddle of the Sphinx. I'm Pastor Don Riley, joined as always by Master Roaster, Pastor Christopher Gillespie. Yep, ready to rock and roll here. All right. Uh, where can they get your coffee? Gillespie.coffee. Coffee. What's the roast yeah, this month? Pipe. Uh, what came in? Uh, it should be on the way to you. Did you get it yet? Uh, no, otherwise I wouldn't be podcasting. I'd be drinking coffee. <laughs> oh, that's true. Uh, I got another Ethiopian dry process, a new one. You should, I think you got a small bag of that. And then uh, Colombia. Oh, nice. No, yeah. um, it's, well, it snowed here yesterday, finally, in Minnesota. And huh. it is... Subarctic temperatures. You know that. You know when it's cold and, and that wind is so cold, it goes like through you to the point where it's just painful. Oh yeah, you, it was bad here. You just too. cuss all the way out the door to the car and then all the way back from the car. Just cuss, 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 cuss. Lord Jesus, have mercy. It's that cold. And yeah. this is the time of year then that I go into full hibernation mode. <laughs> and uh, pop a bear. It really. Um, so it's a good thing I do train every day. Otherwise. Like the old days. I, that's the weird thing. For those of you who are younger, as you get older, your metabolism slows down. And there mm-hmm. was a time when winter rolled around and it was nothing but butter and bacon and baked goods for six months, right? And I would gain, honest, I would gain 10 to 15 pounds in the winter, in a winter, just eat. And then spring would roll around and I'd jump on my bike or go jogging or whatever and just drop the weight. Just It would just slide mm-hmm. off me, right? Mm-hmm. Now, at about 37 is actually when I hit the wall metabolically and noticed that I could not eat a whole bag of cool ranch Doritos while watching Netflix (laughs) and then just get up and and fast for three days and drop the weight that didn't happen. And, uh, so now, yeah, especially being, uh, you know, keto adapted and whatnot. The nice thing about ketogenics is, um, Annie's been making this keto brownie. (laughs) It's so good. It's made with, um, what do you call that? Zucchini. And, uh, oh, okay. yeah. you, you shred an emulsifier, shred the zucchini. And then, um, uh, when you put the batter together, it kind of, I don't want to say emulsifies, that's a gross word, but it disintegrates into the batter. So you're mm-hmm. not eating shredded chunks of zucchini, which sounds very green, jello, Lutheran potluck ish. <laughs> we eat brownies that have zucchini in them because, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. And but when you, uh, when you cook it, it'll take on whatever flavors you put with it. Right, exactly. So it's extremely rich in chocolatey because the natural sugars in the zucchini uh, mm-hmm. come out in the baking process. And so if I had received your coffee, that's what I would be doing right now is eating a brownie and drinking coffee and staring out the mm. window at this Arctic front that's moved in. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I had to drive home. It was still warm yet, but I had to drive home. It was 50 mile per hour gusts. Right. On the expressway. It was kind of fun, you know? Speaking was, of... like uh, a ice skating or something. Well, it is, especially... Well, I don't know about there, but here, uh, especially at the beginning of the season, the Department of Transportation doesn't send the trucks out right away. Oh. They're optimistic that the entire season will be long and they'll be able to use up all their salt and sand and pay all their workers. <laughs> and then somewhere around mid to late January, when we haven't received enough snow, then you see MnDOT out just every day. <laughs> There'll be a dusting of snow and they're out sanding and salting the highways because they've got to use all this up, spend through the budget. But uh, no, it's... Because you don't spend it, you don't get it back again. Right, right exactly, exactly. 
So, and, but I was going to say, speaking of gust, uh, Los Angeles is on fire as we record this podcast. Yeah. I saw that Ventura County, right? Yeah. I've been, uh, monitoring it on Instagram. Friends are posting videos on Instagram, uh, driving down the, mm. what is, what is closed right now? Um, the 405 mm. or whatever, uh, is, is practically shut down. Um, a friend of ours, pastor, uh, Ed Killian, uh, they, uh, I was talking, texting with him and his wife and they're wearing, uh, they have to wear face masks. Because it's so bad. Oh, it's smoke, yeah. Yeah, the smoke. And the and because of the high winds, uh, I think just like yesterday or something, 25,000 people had to be evacuated. And, yeah, I think they're up to 10,000, isn't it? Yeah. No, 100,000. 100,000, 100, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I made the comment to my wife, the only people that get excited by these things are the uh, contractors who uh, rebuild those mansions. Because yeah. otherwise it's terrible. So uh, we certainly uh, pray for all of the people caught up in the wildfires that's horrible to have to go through that especially in los angeles there's so many people packed together and that stuff moves so fast it's amazing it's like the apocalypse yeah but today on the podcast we thought we would give you a treat we are going to read john kleinig uh, a lutheran from down under a mm-hmm. disciple uh who sat at the feet of herman saze and uh, what's we'll put the link, but he there's a website. I think his students actually set it up for him, mm-hmm. uh, but it's John Kleinig something something something, and it's johnkleinig.com. There we go. Yeah, and the, I bookmarked it, so I never pay attention. But his students have put up his articles, audio recordings. It has links okay. to his commentary. His commentary on Le- Leviticus is. Um, what would you say? Anybody who can Definitive. <laughs> anybody who can make Leviticus interesting to read, <laughs> oh yeah, is truly a master at his craft. And that that commentary on Leviticus is remarkable. It really well, is. well, and pro- profoundly Christological through and through. Right, the way Kleinig does it, mm-hmm. <laughs> the way other people do it, it's like reading a a, a butcher's list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. But no, the way he does it is is profoundly Christ focused and Christ centered, and really. I don't think until I started listening to his lectures on Leviticus and reading articles that he had written in the build-up to the commentary that I really appreciated Leviticus mm. Christologically. Yeah. I think we've talked about this before, obviously, but when you go into the Bible and you're looking for Christ, you're, you're you know beating the bushes for Christ, and then you hit Leviticus, it's pretty foggy. <laughs> yeah. You either quit or you just skip. Right. And I think that is because of the transactional nature of the way that we think, right? That when you read Leviticus more than any of the other books, because it is so grounded in the sacrificial system of Israel and these rubrics and ordinances and teachings and so forth, it's easy to get lost in the tall grass and come you know, through it saying, oh, this is a whole book about our transactional relation with God. Right. Right. Kind of makes a great point, though, I think repeatedly, that um, the difference between the worship of the Hebrews and, and that of the surrounding yeah. uh, regions isn't so much animal sacrifice or burnt offerings or any of that. Uh, it's that God appoints it. Right, God exactly. It and says, here's the blessings attached to this. Do this, and here, and here are the blessings. Right. And it's not uh, do this in order to receive the blessings. It's just... You know, here are the blessings for you, and they're attached to these things. Yeah, they look a lot like what your neighbor's doing, um, but your faith that I'm giving you <laughs> is tells you it's something quite different. Well, and that's the thing. I, I bring this up. Uh, an ancient Near Eastern historian that I know uh, or used to know uh, pointed this out to me that the history, and I think uh, Rene Girard in 
um, uh, what's that called? Uh, uh, something in the sacred. It's right on the tip of my tongue. I've read it a million times. And um, Violence in the Sacred, is that it? You know what I'm talking about, Rene Girard? I own it. No, I don't. It's, it's uh, on the other side of the wall that I'm sitting against. A philosopher of some sort. Rene yeah. Girard, yeah, he wrote a lot of books on, well, he wrote a lot of books, but uh, he wrote a lot of books on the history of religion and the nature of religion. And because he was, in one way, he was fascinated. Violence in the Sacred, that's the name of it. Violence in the Sacred. Yeah, Violence in the Sacred. Um, I found it too. 1972. Yes. It's an exceptionally good book to read because one of the things that he points out in this ancient Near Eastern historian point out to me is that the history of sacrifice is the history of the misinterpretation of Abraham. That when Abraham would encounter Amorites, Ammonites, Canaanites, whoever it might be, and he, you know, he preaches to them about the command to sacrifice Isaac, for example, and then God right. providing the ram. If you mishear that, what it sounds like is if I sacrifice something to God, he'll give me something in return. And that the, the purer the sacrifice, the more um, pious my sacrifice, the greater the reward. And Abraham, uh, Abraham offering his only son is the highest sacrifice you could make to the gods, and therefore this is what God gave Abraham, cattle, family, wealth, <laughs> all of this, victory over his enemies. That the history of, of false worship is really the, the misunderstanding of what Abraham was about. Um, or going back around to what you were just saying in regards to the sacrificial difference between Israel and the nations around them when mm -hmm. Israel was tuned up is that the word for spirit and soul and breath is nefesh in Hebrew, and that the Lord gives us our breath, and then he takes it back, and then he gives it to us again, and that we don't breathe on our own even. This is something the psalmist picks up on constantly and unfortunately gets translated too often as soul ah. versus breath, that in the sense of that my breath, my soul, and like Luther picks this up in the Magnificat commentary, that the, the place of our soul is the place where the Holy Spirit dwells within us, and it's also the seat of where he creates faith. So that right. when I breathe out a confession, it's not my breath, it's not my confession, but rather the breath that's being expressed from me is the breath of the Lord, that essentially my life is on loan, <laughs> and that it's the Lord then who's the owner of my life. He's the owner of my breath. He gives it to me. He can take it from me anytime he wants. That's why right. when Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees, that Hebraism, that woe means, you know, it would be better had you never been born, is just a, a fancy way of saying you're dead. You're a dead man walking. And the Pharisees saying, mm, we're not dead. And that's offensive that you would say that. Well, <laughs> Jesus is the one who put the breath into their lungs, and therefore he's the one who could take that breath back whenever he wants. And so right. if, if the one who gave you breath says you're dead, you're dead. And that should be cause for concern. And so in the, in the sacrificial, the, the cultus of, uh, the sacrificial cultus of Israel, that's exactly it, is that God is a giver God. He is here amongst us. He's not on some mountain peak, not in the, you know, some, there I did it twice. I said, you know, twice. Um, I'm hyper, mm -hmm. I'm yeah. hyper aware of that now. Because uh, I listen to other podcasts and I hear it all the time. It drives me nuts now. But uh, that God is the giver of the sacrifice, we offer the sacrifice back to God, not because he needs our sacrifice, but rather right. to point out our dependence upon him mm -hmm. as the giver of every good and perfect gift. And likewise, simultaneously to point us to the one time for all time sacrifice, the Lamb of God. Right. right. 
So the idea of a sacrifice isn't wrong. It's it's just the direction of that sacrifice. Exactly. Right? That's why we would argue or we would explain to sacrificial theologians, covenantal theologians, we might call them, that mm-hmm. we are testamental theologians, or in another word, we're sacramental. That right. is, my piety, and we're about to get to this in Kleinig's article, my piety is sacramental. It's not based on my works. It's not based on my devotion. It's not based on my service record or any of these things. That the whole reason I am a Lutheran is because of the heavy emphasis that Lutherans have always had on the sacraments. And as Dr. Kleinig says in other places, if you want to find Lutheran spirituality, you have to look in our mouth. (laughs) Not in our hands and feet, but rather in our mouth where we receive the body and blood of Christ, where the word of God penetrates into us in such a way that he plunges himself into our ears and into our mouths, into our very bones, cutting bone from marrow. And that these other traditions, they will locate their spirituality in their intellect, in their emotions, in their activities. But Lutherans are solidly grounded in the spirituality of the cross, which just so happens to be one of his books. It's in our mouth. You've got to go find the body and blood of Christ if you want to understand yeah. our, our, our piety, our spirituality. And it really is, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, it really is the thing that will disenfranchise Lutherans at a table of Christians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Yeah, let's have a worship service together. No. <laughs> well, why not? Because it's, you know, sacramental and we're kind of mm-hmm. serious about it and you all deny the real presence. So uh, is means is for us and it doesn't for you and it would get kind of awkward. <laughs> yeah. It would just get kind of awkward. So the the essay... That we are it's kind of Lutheranism in general, isn't it? It really is. It, it, Lutheranism <laughs> at its best is socially awkward because we double down on the sacraments, and right. we're so we're so gospel focused, so focused on the spirituality of the cross, on the sacraments, that it becomes annoying to people who ask, "Well, can't you just accept that it's a spiritual eating and drinking, not an yeah. actual eating and drinking?" And as this quantum physicist pointed out in this lecture I listened to the other day, there's perception and there's reality. And just right. because your perception of reality is is contradicted by reality, that's a hard thing to give up. It's it's a hard thing to give up when you find out that an electron isn't a particle, it's a cloud. That's why textbooks in schools haven't changed and said, no, it's a cloud. No, it looks like the solar system because it would cost millions of dollars to change our textbooks and the math is super complicated and no one really cares. Right. <laughs> well, right. In, the, in the terms of piety, in terms of, of sacramental theology... When Lutherans are tuned up, that's that's the heart of our argument for justification by faith alone. Right. And that's what really uh, makes us more, even more socially awkward is to say to someone, oh, come to our church, but we don't really need you. We don't need yes. your works. We don't need your money. Um, <laughs> yeah. We don't need you to volunteer. Um, you need to receive. Right. Uh, and that's why we want you here. Exactly. Right? Yeah. For your sake, for your soul's sake, for exactly. salvation. Mm-hmm. Which is a nice segue into the Kleinig article we pulled out. It's called Luther on the Practice of Piety. Lutheran Theological Journey 48. Journey? Lutheran Theological Journey 48. No. Lutheran Theological Journal number 48. This is a spirit walk. <laughs> it's a Taizé kind of main. <laughs> no, say your mantra. Get just in your say zone. no to Taizé. That's where I'm at with that. Uh, Luther on the Practice of Piety. Lutheran Theological Journal 48. 2014, 172 to 185. This article is also available on the website that we talked about. Yep, I got linked up in the show notes. And I think, what did we say? We were going to start on page 18? Page 19, didn't we? 18, 18, bottom of 18. Oh, yes, Luther's Handbook. Luther's Handbook for Evangelical Piety. So we're going to start here. 
run through a paragraph or so, and then we're going to jump to the conclusion because everything in between these first two paragraphs and the conclusion is Kleining outlining the small catechism <laughs> and explaining the evangelical piety of the catechism. So you can go okay. get this and read it for yourself. Never hurts for a review. No, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's been said ad nauseum. It's a dead horse at this point. I know beating a dead horse <laughs> with a dead horse, but uh, Martin Luther's small catechism is not a book for children. <laughs> It's not a children's book in the sense of the Jack and Jill stories from, uh, you, well, our youth, not the youth of people today. Um, in, in the sense that we're all kind of like juvenile idiots. Right. We're all, well, that's <laughs> the thing, right? Is that uh, if you have children, uh, or maybe even if you don't, but as you get older, especially when you do have children, you tend to look at people, di- I look at adults differently since mm. I've had children especially my third, fourth, and fifth child. The first two, I was just white-knuckling it, trying to figure out how to be a parent and not kill <laughs> them uh, or dent them permanently. But, That's right. But with the third, fourth, and fifth, you, you, you kind of get the idea of what it takes to be a parent, and you've got all the bumpers up and everything's nerfed for the most part. Mm. And if they fall down the stairs, you realize if they're not bleeding and they're not quiet, they're okay. <laughs> Which, to someone without children, when a child rolls down the stairs and you hear them crying and say, just stand up and walk it off, they're horrified. <laughs> You're a terrible parent, but you as a parent oh, realize it's only when they're quiet that you have to worry. Yeah. If you hear them rolling down the stairs and there's no crying, that's when they're hurt. So yeah, we don't have that. We don't have the playgrounds like we used to, right? Where no, right. There was a risk of oh. not only accidental injury, but <laughs> serious risk of death. You had, you had little, those little gravel shrapnel pellets coming out of your skin <laughs> for years after you fell off the monkey bars <laughs> or went, or went flying face first off the slide. And That's just right. face planted in that gravel. Like there were, I, I can remember just chunks coming out of my cheek and my forehead when you would get <laughs> up off the ground. Nobody thought to sue the city council or put in AstroTurf or something or just shut down yeah, the park. shredded tires or whatever they used. That's now. just what you did. <laughs> it was, if you didn't have, you know, face shrapnel, you have nuggets of gravel coming out of your kneecaps, there was something wrong with you. But uh, no, as I get older, I tend to, I I understand now, I see like an 80 year old adult man as just a grown up baby, right? (laughs) That's, he was a baby at one time and he Mm. grew up and he had hopes and dreams and he lived a life and had jobs and did things and went places. Maybe he shot a Nazi. (laughs) He collected unemployment. He went to school on the GI Bill. He married his second wife because the first one got tired of the fact that he snored. And so she left him and he's Mm. lived a life, but in the end, he's a grown up baby. And Mm. in the old days, you know, especially when you're young, I think you look at older people as just, that's the way they always are. You know, Ah, static, static, right? That when I was little, my grandma Riley was always my grandma Riley. She was just old. She was just old. And then one day her mm-hmm. hair turned white and she died. Like to me, mm-hmm. my grandma was always old. And as I've gotten older now and I am more aware, especially in your mid forties, when you can see 65 and 25 from equal distances, perspectives, yeah. that's mm-hmm. what I mean. The difference between perspective and reality is when you start to see people as grown up babies, it, at least for me, it really helps me forgive people. <laughs> Because yeah. you realize this is a this is a baby and their flesh just kind of grew up around that baby. But they still have the same basic needs, wants, desires as a baby. You, When you hold a baby as a father and that baby is breastfeeding and they decide that they want to eat, you are the most worthless person <laughs> on the face of the planet at that moment. And they yeah. let you know so immediate that you are worthless yeah. to them. And 
That, Man, it won't stop him from trying at least once. Oh, 100%. She latches onto <laughs> my finger and she just takes it for a ride, man. She's like, I know there's milk in this finger. I'm getting it. And I'm like, baby, no, no, baby. And then she's mad. Oh, and then she starts screaming at me and you recognize yourself in, in a baby. Like You recognize your own personality yep. traits. Yep. You recognize that rage. Even though there's no language to what she's saying to me, <laughs> she's just screaming in my face. I recognize the face of that rage and that's my face. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's so difficult especially with my fifth kid now, and you know this too, as you have kids, it's harder and harder to get mad at them because you recognize more and more of your own flaws and failures <laughs> and personality quirks in the way that they react to situations. Well, your goals kind of shift in that um, you try to give them the best of who you are and yeah. avoid the worst. Right. Um, but then at some point you realize that that's futile too. Yeah, it is. It really <laughs> is. It really and you just is. give up and you just try to get out of the way and right. let them just grow up exactly. on, their, you know, exactly. on their own terms. How can I be your parent? How can I not kill you? Just tell me that. Give me that information. Yeah. So when it comes to this conversation, then I tend to approach it similarly as mm -hmm. from the vocation of father, the vocation of spiritual father, of pastor is, we're all just babies who grew up. We all have a history. We're not static individuals. We mm -hmm. didn't hatch as grandparents. We didn't hatch as 25-year-olds. We didn't hatch as teenage boys, thank God. Uh, mm -hmm. But rather, we're constantly fluid. We're constantly dynamic. We're moving and living and being. And that... We don't, we don't hatch as Lutherans either. No. no. Or even Christians. Well, I didn't matter. for sure. Or yeah, you don't yeah. hatch as Christians. Uh, in sin, my mother conceived me. Psalm 51. Mm -hmm. And this whole matter then of piety and confusing piety, is, especially in the Lutheran and the Calvinist traditions, because we do have such a strong history in pietism and the pietistic movements of the 17 and 1800s for the most part, and the different strains of pietism, we often confuse piety with pietism. And pietism gets a negative rap a lot of times, and I would say rightly so, but mm -hmm. because pietism, for all of its positive corrections to Lutheran orthodoxy and rationalism and romanticism, going back to what we were saying earlier, every movement within the church, when it goes wrong, turns away from the sacraments. Yeah, It turns away from receiving and the passivity of salvation to the activity of mm. not necessarily participating in salvation, at least not for Lutherans, we're kind of allergic to that word participation in salvation because we had this little reformation to reject that, but, right. but rather that the sacraments become the jumping off point. They are the thing that, they're the Jesus juice that, <laughs> that strengthens us, that empowers us, that enables us to obey the law, live a godly life, love our neighbor more, all these things. And that, that turn, and again, in and of itself, there's nothing wrong. If you read the post-communion collect in the Lutheran service book, Divine Service 3, faith toward you, fervent love toward one another, that's our prayer following the reception of Jesus' body and blood. There's nothing inherently wrong with praying for more faith and more love. It's, right. But as you pointed out, it's when that becomes the whole purpose, that it turns back on that sacrificial bent. Yeah. That why it was driven, driven out of fear, right? Of course. That, you know, if, if we get the piety right, then people will stay in the church right. and they won't abandon the faith and our kids will stay Christian. And, and, and so we're going to do all these things yes. um, rather than uh, actually just trust in the gifts and try to be faithful in giving those. You know, well, and this goes back to Luther's analogy of, of sinners, the old Adam being like a drunk trying to get on the horse. And that mm -hmm. every time he gets his foot in the stirrup, he throws himself into the other ditch that... You have a, a movement that reacts to, say, a lack of 
theological doctrinal seriousness. And they go so hard in that direction that they end up saying that if if your theology isn't right, you're not a Christian. Hmm. You're heterodox. And then the movement, that reaction to that is, well, it's not just about reading books and knowing theology. It's about your experience of being a Christian. And then they go hard, so hard the other direction in experience that they reject doctrine for experiences. And then mm-hmm. the reaction to that is, well, no, you're not putting enough emphasis on the intellect and reason and understanding what faith is. So you have to understand what your faith is. And then they go on that, and it's just a constant herky-jerky motion. Yeah. And as Saze said Push in that essay that we Talking. read on preaching the sacraments, the history of the Lutheran church is the history of us just herking and jerking back and forth and tripping over the sacraments on our way to the other ditch. Hmm. Or as I think it was Tertullian, was it Tertullian who said the opposite of heresy is heresy? Hmm. I don't know. That sounds good though. But it's the opposite of heresy is not orthodoxy. The opposite of heresy is heresy. <laughs> Because what happens is you 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 launch yourself out of the ditch of heresy and land in the other ditch <laughs> and say, well, I'm never going to do this. The parenting analogy fits here too. How do For most of us, many of us, our first child is just a reaction against our, our parents' way of raising us. I'm just going to parent my children the exact opposite way my parents raised me because they were wrong and they were stupid and they didn't know any better. And I'm more enlightened now and I'm smarter and I have more worldly experience. <laughs> And I've read a book. I know how to raise a child. I've watched YouTube. And then you you have your first child and you do all these things you're supposed to and you buy $5,000 worth of equipment <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, and make sure they only eat the right kinds of foods and they have the right kind of diapers and blah, blah. They sleep at a certain angle and all these things. And then, like you pointed out, in the end, they still end up scarred and damaged worse than all the other kids. <laughs> right. And they go, hey, how come I was only allowed to watch 30 minutes of TV a day? They get to watch TV all, as much as they want. Well, have you looked at yourself lately? (laughs) It didn't seem to make much of a difference. No, you're still awkward homeschooler. (laughs) Exactly. Not that I would let my kids watch TV all day. I don't, but uh, you you do. You it's the it's our nature to just launch ourselves from one extreme to the other extreme. It's like uh, I see people go on diets. We see this all the time, right? Mm. It's Christmas time. The new year rolls around. People are going to get healthy, and. I know at least at, at the gym, January and February are two of the most dangerous months of the year because people make up this New Year's resolution, I'm going to learn jiu-jitsu, I'm going to learn how to fight. <laughs> and then they come in on fire and they're spaz, and so they end up hurting themselves and hurting you, and then they never right. come back because it's too hard. And that's just, that's the way we go. That's the way we go. As I've said before, our heart wants what it wants and our mind is just constantly justifying what our heart wants that's what sin is that's the bondage of the will and so when it comes to this whole matter of piety that's the struggle of piety is we're constantly trying to find our piety outside of jesus Mm. and then using the savior as our jumping off point as the springboard the launching point for whatever it is whatever kind of piety we're pursuing to show god hey look i'm doing something and we're kind of like North Korea in that sense. We launch a rocket and it kind of explodes <laughs> because right. the, we don't have the science down yet. We're not, we're not Tesla. And, uh, and so we go from bad to worse and then we start inflicting our piety on other people. And that drives them away from the gospel and the gifts. And especially within a congregation, this can be incredibly toxic mm. because piety is contagious, right? If you see somebody who's just killing the game, with their piety, you want to be like that person. You want to imitate them. 
Right. And because it looks good, right? It looks good. How many pastors do we know? How many youth leaders, how many well-meaning Sunday school teachers will have students stand up after their youth group trip and and show pictures of what they did building the school, digging a ditch, feeding starving children, so forth and so on. And then the pastor or somebody says, these children are an example to us. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Right? And then yeah. everyone looks at their feet because it's like, well, I, I could never do that for whatever reason, or maybe I don't want to do that. Hmm. But you make, you make people feel bad about hmm. being Christians because they are not enough. Because you're talking about religious practices and devotion right. that you can see, that you can observe. Right. It's and I'm not knocking bodily action. I'm not knocking, you know, short-term uh, youth mission trips, spiritual safaris, as I call them. I was a missionary. I came back. I was incredibly snobbish and arrogant towards pew sitters and churches, and mm. I was the one pointing the finger, saying, "You don't really know what it's like out there. You need to get in the field." I was like a vet coming back from the war. You don't. You don't. <laughs> After two weeks, you don't know the things I've seen. Yeah. No, I lived there for a year. So when I came back and I was asked because oh, you I had was, ex- yeah, extra actual mission experience. Reading. And then I was asked if I would lead youth trips because of my missionary experience and because I had traveled in Mexico and Central America and lived there as a missionary, people would ask, would you take our youth group? And I'd always say no, because the places that I lived were super gnarly and not somewhere that I wouldn't want to take teenagers for a short-term trip. Hmm. And I had, but I had that arrogance too of, well, you're just going on spiritual safari. You just want to go to, you know, feel good about yourself and then take pictures and, and put, you had that experience. And now you can say, oh, I feel so grateful that I have stuff that these people will never have. <laughs> and uh, in fact, I was just listening to an interview. I think you listened to the same interview of this atheist knocking Christians who live in the Midwest, because it's easy to be a Christian when you have a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, that's right. But when you live in the Middle East it's easy to see why these Muslims become radicalized mm. or that any religion in a third world country, that's basically a desert. It's easy to become radicalized because what do you have yeah. <laughs> to cling to other than the promise of a better life in the hereafter? And so, so you either have to make everybody else's life miserable right, uh, or, or just try to, to, to steal and take what, what you don't have. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. In the name of religion. <laughs> right. Well, and I, uh, friends of mine that live in third world countries, when we talk, they say, the reason that I resent Americans, not America, is you have everything that we want, and yet you have no regard for it whatsoever. Mm. <laughs> that the things you throw away, I would p- pay anything to have. The things that you treat as garbage, for us, are treasure. And I understand mm. that. I can respect that attitude that... For someone looking on looking from the outside in, it's like the the Christmas movies where the poor kid is looking through the storefront window at the display and uh, looking at the children with their parents picking out their Christmas presents and just hoping they can eat. <laughs> that there is that sense of standing, or there's that picture of the cowboys on their horses outside the church. You know which picture I'm talking about? It's a famous painting. But yeah, it sounds familiar. It's a painting of these two cowboys, and they're looking into a church and it's at dusk, and the congregation's singing a hymn, and they're looking in from the outside. And it's a really poignant painting. And there's so much that can be taken from that painting of these cowboys. I think it's called the Cowboys. But that when you're on the outside oh, yeah. looking in on it, it is easy to either yearn for what you don't have or resent what you don't have because you don't believe or you don't feel or you don't perceive that they appreciate it as much as you would appreciate it. Right, And then when it comes to the matter of piety, that's when things get really hinky. Because 
well, why you're not very pious and look at all the things you have. Look at the success you have. You have a wonderful relationship with your kids. You have a nice job, a nice house. You always have the, you know, your shoes are always spit shined. All these things. By the way, if you don't understand what a spit shine is, once again, I just, I sound like I'm I'm from the 1920s. And then after the depression, but, uh, so that's really what Kleining is after. And this is, I think the value of John Kleining is not only as a student of Saze translating Hermann Saze for our modern ears, but also where he goes with his Lutheran education, his Lutheran spirituality, his Lutheran piety to help focus us like he does with the Leviticus commentary to really focus us, focus us in on what is the Lutheran aspect of Christian piety, evangelical piety and why it is so important for us to see something like the small catechism of Dr. Luther as a handbook for our piety, not just as a kid's book, but as a devotional book, something you can pray through, something you can read and study, something you can use to preach out of, something you can teach out of, but also something to really keep your piety pointed true north. So let's dive into it. Sounds like a plan. All right. The theological profundity of Luther's teaching results. Rather surprisingly, in a simple pattern of daily devotions, both for himself and for others. In his daily devotions, Luther prayed the catechism, And that, for him, consisted of three main texts, the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. That is also what he advocates for all Christians and teaches in his small catechism. This is the thing, too. If you read Luther's uh, hand, uh, the little book of prayer that he wrote for his barber. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Who was a barber and a dentist and so many other things, because that's really what barbers were back in those days. Uh, barbers were off in the town doctor. If there was no doctor, for some reason, the, the barber was the doctor. Hmm. And the dentist and so many other things. Uh, but Luther's barber, uh, Peter, right? Peter that the barber? Right. Yeah, Peter the barber. I was thinking, I was, yeah, I was thinking Samuel I, Barber, but that's a different. No, I think it's <laughs> Sam. Uh, Honest Sam. Bugs Bunny cartoons. Honest Sam. Vote for Honest Sam. But the, the barber, he would, obviously Luther would go in and get a shave and a haircut and all these things, shave and a haircut two bits, and they would have theological conversations. And a lot of the conversations revolved around this matter of just the Christian faith and what is a Christian, what does it take to be a Christian, what isn't Christian, so forth and so on. And so finally Luther just sat down and he figured, hey, my barber has these questions, my students have these questions, I hear confessions all the time, they have the same questions, I'll just write this little book on prayer. Simple Way to Pray, Mm -hmm. which is available through Concordia Publishing House, actually. And it's one of those things that I buy in bulk so I can give them out to new members and visitors and so forth, because it really is a great little introduction to what will eventually become my introducing them to the small catechism. But especially for people that didn't grow up Lutheran or don't understand what the catechism is or what it's for, I like a simple way to pray as a conversation starter, because it is the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. And Luther right. writing of an explanation for his barber of how to pray these things and how to meditate on them. And it really is the precursor to the catechisms. And please and look. It's only three eighty nine on Amazon. Oh, really? Wow. Yep. three seventy two for Kindle. Nice. Cheap. I don't have that on Kindle. I think I got it. You should get a Kindle copy. I should, right? It's Concordia Publishing House. I love it. Um... So that's what he does then, is that for Luther, there's three main parts to the cat. And 
for those of you who don't know, the, the medieval catechisms had three parts, the commandments, the creed, and the Lord's Prayer, not in that order. That it was usually the creed or the prayer that came first, and the Ten Commandments were usually either usually last, actually. Mm-hmm. And Luther did not originally plan on adding the sacraments or the table of duties to his catechism. He was just going to follow the same basic outline of all catechisms, which is commandment, creed, Lord's Prayer, in some sort of order. The radical thing Luther did is put the commandments at the beginning of his catechism. That's because right. Because Luther wants to begin his catechism where life begins, under the law. And so by the end of the catechism, he ends life where, or he ends his catechism where your new life is, which is the sacraments. And then he adds the table of duties because now that you've received the body and blood of Jesus, what do you do? You go and enjoy your vocation as a baptized child of God. And so the commandments, the creed, and Lord's Prayer are his catechism. And then he realizes once again from his conversations and from hearing confession, Christians don't know the first thing about the sacraments. (laughs) Because guess what? There are no catechisms that teach the sacraments. And if you think of late medieval piety, it's not for Christian laity to understand the sacraments or even know what the sacraments are. It's simply for you to venerate them, not even receive them, but to venerate them, to worship them, to bow before them, that this is the body and blood of Jesus. I mean, you're not going to get them because you're not worthy, but Hmm. at the very, Luther tells famous stories, especially around Holy Week, of Christians running door to door in the in cities like Berlin and, and other places, so that because they believed that if you just saw the priest consecrate the elements, you got the blessing. Nice. So people would cover eight masses a day, just running from church to church, stand in the doorway, see the mass being said, run to the next doorway, see another mass, and that way you got eight blessings in one day. You didn't have to go to church the rest of the year. What are you, it's like church tourism or something. Right. Yeah, exactly. Got to hit all the hot spots while you're in town. Mm. So we actually had that happen here. When you visited last week, I was telling you about this, that uh, the, the Roman Catholic Diocese of Mariary had, they consolidated one for lack of money, two for lack of people, and three, people were picking their favorite priests oh, and yeah. then following them to mass because the priests have a, they're uh, revolving. So they have a different priest every week for the mass. And once people figure out who their favorite priest is, they just follow that priest from church to church. So one Sunday of every month, there's a small country church that has 800 people in it. <laughs> and then the rest of the month, there's 30 people there. And it's all just dependent on who the priest is that, that week. Huh. And that's what people would do in the Middle Ages too, because it's not about the sermon. It's not about receiving the sacrament. It's about seeing the ritual enacted performing your sacrifice, which is to be present for the sacrifice. The priest does everything for you anyways. He's the guy with the blue gas. He's the guy with the power to do all this. You're inconsequential at that point. And so what else are you supposed to do other than venerate the action, worship the action? You know, that Father Mulcahy, he celebrates the best mass. Right, exactly. He's, <laughs> the way he elevates and, and rolls his R's, it's just, it, uh, it, it turns my it's exquisite. Pli- turn my spine to platinum every time I hear it. It's amazing. <laughs> oh, so for Luther, yeah, he, he rearranges the order of the three chief articles in the catechism and then realizes, oh, wait, laity don't really know the first thing about the sacraments, so we'll throw those in there. Mm. And then the question that comes to him all the time is, all right, I'm baptized. Now what? <laughs> do I just get to slack off until I die and then I get to go to heaven? Can I do whatever I want to do? Yeah. And again, you you who have died to the world, how can you continue in sin? You're dead in sin. How can you continue in sin? Romans 6. And Luther says, no, of course not. 
So table of duties, here's what you do in your vocation. And when you come to the end of the catechism and you read the table of duties, it shoots you right back into the commandments. And that's then for Luther, that's kind of your piety. That's the shape of your piety, the direction, the trajectory of your piety is you start under the law, go through the commandments into the creed, and then through the creed, you enter the gospel. And then now that you're in the gospel and you know who your savior is, how do you address your savior? How do you pray? So forth and so on. And then through that relationship to your God, how do you receive the benefits of forgiveness, life, and salvation? And then now that I am forgiven, now that I do have new life, what do I do with it? You go serve your neighbor in love. That's the whole catechism in a nutshell. That's why we use it for devotions and as a handbook for piety. Right. So Luther continues, the small catechism is Luther's, or I'm sorry, Kleinig continues. The small catechism is Luther's handbook, his handbook for family devotions. It's his textbook for evangelical piety. Like a handbook for the training of an artisan, it gives instruction hmm. in the rules and practices of the Christian life. Yeah, rules and practices. That sounds like disciplines, right? Would that be right. another thing? This is kind of like, uh, uh, what, I heard this advice more than once, you know, to set out your uh, workout clothes the night before. So when you get up in the morning, you see them and you have, you know, it just right. gives you that little extra motivation. So right. have your catechism like at your bedside and either before you go to bed or when you rise or maybe both. Right, <laughs> right. You know, there it is. Well, and I've said this before, too, that when I started going to Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the old timers said, throw your, you know, they were, she was taught this in, in recovery. You throw your shoes under the bed when you go to sleep at night. So then in the morning when you have to get up and put your shoes on, you have to get down on your knees to claw, to claw your shoes out from underneath the bed. And since you're down there on your knees, pray. <laughs> hmm. And she said, because she was an atheist when she went into rehab. And yeah. it was through that whole process of forcing herself to pray a prayer that she didn't believe in that she eventually actually, one, came to believe in a higher power and spirituality in a general sense, and then eventually become a Christian. So I'm not saying it's foolproof, but it certainly helps if you can't uh, get yourself well, to pray. It, so it's not just discipline for the sake of, you know, what benefit it might give you or something, you know, right. like you're working out to lose weight or something like that. Right. But I, I like his analogy with it being like an artisan. Right. right. So you're talking about mastery of a craft, if you want. Or, yes. Um, you know. Well, and it's an important uh, point, too, that in a platonic sense, in a philosophical sense, you can misread this to mean that just as a master cabinet maker teaches his apprentice how to build a cabinet, that's the mentor relationship, the mentor-student mm -hmm. relationship, and that, that's how you become a master cabinet maker, is you go find a master to teach you how to become a cabinet maker. And I bring it up because late medieval piety actually taught this, <laughs> that essentially Jesus is our master, he is our Lord, and he teaches us, he apprentices us into how to behave like a Christian. That is, follow Jesus' example. The primary picture, the primary image of Jesus in late medieval Catholicism <clears throat> excuse me, is of the exemplum Christi, the example of Christ. That was really yeah. the primary purpose of Jesus was to show us how to be good Christians. And I would argue from my time in evangelical Christianity and talking with others since then, that's kind of the way evangelical Christianity yeah. uses Jesus. A nice example and a, a goal, maybe. Oh, of course, because you can't ever be God. Oh, so it's a nice goal. You can just keep working towards it. Exactly. You're always stuck in that tension between where you come from and where you're going. And again, it appeals to the uh, the, our, the the need that we have to perform some sort of sacrifice for God. Yeah. To prove to God our good intentions or our thoughts and prayers are with him, that kind of stuff, you know, that mm. 
but so don't get it twisted that what Luther's talking about here is follow the example of Jesus, follow the example of Dr. Luther, follow the example of person X, Christian X. And in this way, you'll become a master Christian by and by. That's not what he's talking about. But rather like an artisan, training like an artisan, that yes, you seek out a master, uh, a master artisan, someone who can apprentice you, that they teach you the rules and the practices for how to ply your trade. And to add to it then, for Luther, and unfortunately we don't really make this distinction, but there's a difference between your vocation and your job. Yeah, right. That your vocation is something that you would do even if you weren't paid to do it. Mm. Like father, like husband. Well, hopefully. Some Sundays, like a pastor, for me, mm. some, few, in between. Uh, I'm more of a Jonah type of pastor. But um, that really your, that. Vo- your vocation is your passion. It's the thing that you would suffer for a thousand times. It's the thing that you would give anything to do, whether it be, for me, it's art and music. For mm. others, it may be cabinetry and woodworking. For others, it may be exercise and physical health, whatever it may be. You don't need to be paid to do it. You don't need to, you're not doing it because you can show off to your friends and say, look, I lost all this weight. Oh, look how strong I am. Oh, look at what I built. You know, these kind. Of, you just do it because you love it and you can't not do it. Mm-hmm. And well, you're that's ju- the word artisan, right? Right. I mean, that, that it's an artistry that you're, you're applying. Well, maybe with our previous podcast, Law and Gospel, we said that that's the highest art, right? Is distinguishing exactly it. right, and that doesn't it just it just means that uh, your life is messy and complicated, and the way God's word is applied mm-hmm. to it, you know, it's it's uh, it takes some creativity, <laughs> right? No, that's a good point. And it, Luther talks about this in I think his glosses to the Heidelberg uh, Disputation that uh, we're a rusty axe head, but God is a master carpenter. <laughs> Mm. That's essentially how this works. That one's going to hack away at stuff, huh? Yeah, that we think of ourselves as this this razor sharp, polished axe head. We can cut hmm. through, we can cut through space and time itself. We're so sharp, and yet, just like the horse who decides it's going to decide for the rider where it goes and whether it's going to run or canter or walk or all these things. Likewise, when we think of ourselves as this this pristine axe head. And we think, ah, we're going to split this right down the middle. It's going to be a clean cut. We won't even need to plane or sand this. God <laughs> says, hold up there, Jack. I'm the, I'm the woodworker here. I'm the, um, the one who's going to wield the blade. And right. because I'm a master at this, at this art, I can use you, you rusty axe head, you, you dull, blunt thing. And in relation to Christ, that's what we're, what's revealed to us is that we're not sharp. We're not honed. We're just a rusty, blunt axe head. <laughs> and that's the profound mystery of, of salvation is that Jesus still uses us in spite of mm. that. Mm-hmm. And so that's your vocation. Your vocation is your passion. It's the thing that you have to do because you can't not do it. Your job is what you get paid to do. Yeah. And so pa- pastors aren't professional theologians. Mm, not a, no, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. When I was five, I wanted to be Spider-Man. Oh. Uh, I'm still sore about that, that I was never bit by a radioactive spider. Uh, I'm mm. not the god of thunder. I don't wield Mjolnir. And uh, I'm a pastor, and I'm still disappointed about that. Hmm. <laughs> Given the choice between being the god of thunder and being a Lutheran pastor, I'm 100% I'm going to take god of thunder. Sorry, it's just, you're a superhero, for goodness sakes. How do you not choose that? <laughs> but I, I, and then I would be like, I'm a superhero. I don't need you to pay me. Your thanks is all I need, right? 
I always I like to think of myself as an X-Men because I've got this genetic mutation. So <laughs> That's right. You know. At any time, I, those tumors are going to turn into claws. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Adamantium. That's, That's right. right. Uh, Actually, shout back to my John Travolta reference because in that movie, Michael, remember he thinks he's an angel and in the end they're like, oh yeah, he had brain tumors. <laughs> all the things he saw, all the visions, all the light. Yeah, just brain t- cancer. That's all that was. It was just tumors. He's not an angel. Yeah. So nice. that's what he's after, is that like an, we approach the catechism like an artisan approaches his craft. We're not doing it necessarily because it's our job, because we have to do it. We approach the catechism because it's our passion. It's, mm-hmm. it's the thing that we can't not look at because it's so elegant. It's so well written. It's so simple that even a child can understand it, and yet it can confuse and confound an adult. Yeah, and you don't need to be scared of it either. Right. Right? I mean, you can practice. That's... <laughs> It's the thing, you know, exactly. just pray, exactly. pray and, and see where it goes. And you want to pray differently or better, or I, I well, don't know what better is. That's the interesting thing. I guess we can talk about this and I'll rip on myself. I'll cut myself down is that uh, the longer I'm a Christian, the less I like to pray. Mm. <laughs> I'll just put that out there. That's my confession of sin that when I was a newly minted believer, I prayed constantly. I prayed the Psalms. I prayed the Lord's Prayer. I just prayed, 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 especially when I was an evangelical. I just, I just, I just. I, I did <laughs> I those wanna. prayers. I just want to thank you. I just want to give thanks. I just, I just, I just. Um, Lord Jesus. And that now my prayers are, what's the word? Uh, I pray on Sundays. and yeah, I pray, Formally. I pray right? formally. I pray with my children before meals. I pray when they pray. Mm-hmm. If I didn't have children, I often wonder how often I would pray. Yeah. Well, that's still more of a discipline than it is. It really is. A response to like an emotional crisis well, or something. And the thing is, when I do, uh, for example, a video devotion on a psalm, mm. I am chewing on the psalms and then I carry that with me throughout the rest of my day because I do those video devotions early in the morning. Right. That I then carry that with me through my day that the exegesis, the, the practice, the discipline, as you said, the discipline of chewing on a psalm. Mm-hmm. And sussing out something like, what does the word blessed mean? Or what does it mean that the Lord God is holy? Or the Lord uh, forgives all our iniquities, like Psalm 103 says. What does that mean? And to unpack the language of the psalmist and the theology of the psalmist and how it points to Jesus, that's the stuff that propels me through the day. And I end up, because I had a, a baptism this morning, I did a chapel for a, a Lutheran school up the road, and I did a baptism during their chapel. And... Yeah. That was a part of the the homily that I delivered after the baptism was what I had done in Psalm 103. And I used that then in the prayer of the church and the collect was Psalm 103. So I wonder if as, at least for myself anyways, uh, well, one, I'm, my job is to do that. So there is that aspect to it that people call me, people text me, they ask you as a pastor, can you please pray for me, my family, my friend, this person, that person? You're the person they call to pray and yeah. you're constantly being called to pray professionally, pray liturgically. So then when you're alone, and it's just you, you and your wife, your family, whoever it might be, that's not the first thing I'm thinking about. Mm-mm. And even when I go to bed at night, I usually make the sign of the cross uh, to remind myself I'm a baptized child of God, and then I'll say thank you, and, <laughs> and, and I'll ask for forgiveness for everything I did today, that was just a dumpster fire of sin. And mm-hmm. then I'll go to sleep. <laughs> yeah. And for me, 
personal piety wise, the knowledge that I'm a baptized child of God and the consequences of baptism for me shorten my prayer. Yeah. Do you Not think that uh, do you think that prayer has kind of an inverse relationship uh, with faith in a sense that um, we pray when when we're in despair, uh, anxiety, worry. Yes, you know, very much so. Right. That that's when we're driven to prayer, um, not necessarily for answers, but for confidence that um, in God's word and what He has promised, you know, to us. But when when we are resting in that confidence and in that hope and in salvation in Christ, um, the need to, for prayer seems to go down. <laughs> oh, I agree, hundred percent. My favorite psalms are the penitential psalms, mm. but. Only time a certain crisis, times. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah. if I were to pick up the penitential psalms like Psalm 32 or something right now, I would read through it quickly. Uh, I know this. And then I would reflect on what Dr. Luther said about it or somebody or some theologian. But I really wouldn't hang on it versus yeah. when my wife is in labor right? and I'm holding her hand, I'm that's all I'm doing is praying. Yeah. Or, or there's a hiccup and they say, oh, you know, the ultrasound, there's an abnormality, something we got to check into this more, all of a sudden you go into panic mode. Yeah. And then it's nothing. And you're relieved, but it is, it's like a thunderstorm. Yeah. It's like a this blizzard. Is, this is great, uh, you know, very pious meditation on Psalm 6, uh, The Problem of Suffering by Greg Schultz. He's at yeah. Uh, yeah, right. Concordia. That's a wonderful book. Mequon. Yeah. It is a wonderful little book. And he tells you that right away, I mean, this is in the, in the context of the death of his child. Mm-hmm. You know, I think exactly. it was his son. His son has, yeah, has died, son. and and he's driven to Psalm six and Luther's treatment of it, and um, you know, it's in that crisis that it comes alive. Right. You know, the the need to pray in that way. And maybe this, you and I have talked about this off the air plenty, but this might also go more not necessarily to my own lack of personal piety, but rather the comfortableness of our culture, mm. both our church culture and just our culture in general. That just like our our culture outside our windows is madly, you know, just madly pursuing things to be angry about and outraged mm-hmm. about. We're mm-hmm. inventing crises for ourselves because we just don't have, we don't have any real struggle. We don't have to go out and hunt for our food. We don't have to find shelter. We don't have to preserve fire for our, for our camp. Sure. Our life is very, even, the, even the, the poorest amongst us have opportunities that people 50, 60, 100 years ago would never have had. And... You go outside of that then, and you go to a country or a place where they don't have potable water, they don't know where the next meal is coming from, they're under constant threat from external enemies, uh, they're the most Christian. <laughs> they cling to yeah. God the most piously. They pray the most. Why? Because what do they really have that they can, the illusion of control over? Well, hmm. not much, but they can pray. They can wait yeah. on the Lord to deliver them. Whereas when I pray, I don't really need the Lord to deliver me right now. I'm, I'm good. I'm set. Hmm. That I, my life is simple. And that in that simplicity, there's a satisfaction and there's a comfort. Yeah. I don't, so it's really not related to creaturely comfort, but, but more of a spiritual comfort, right? Yeah, right. There's, where's yeah. the crisis? You know, existential crisis, internal <laughs> intellectual crises, a crisis of emotions, a crisis in a relationship may drive you to pray. But sure. Then is it like a charm? Are you praying like a spell, like an incantation? Yeah, you know, Lord, like a bring her back. Meditation or something, right. right? I remember before when I was going through my period, right before my conversion, where I was just thinking through these things. And uh, here, this is really going to date me. I had I got tickets 
to the Guns N' Roses Metallica Faith No More concert. Wow. And I had to work and nobody could fill in for me. That's really a bummer. And I remember praying, Lord, if you can just find someone to (laughs) work for me, me. I'll go to church with my girlfriend. (laughs) Right. And in the end, I just ended up closing the office and giving the person the keys and said, lock up when you're done. Uh, and leaving a whole bunch of junior high kids to just take care of themselves on a college campus in downtown St. Paul. And right. yeah, that was super mature and responsible because Metallica. Yeah, and, I know priorities, right? Right, priorities. And of course, I did what I needed to do to get to the concert because the priority was there. And never thought of that prayer again until years later when um, I was talking with someone about the the drunkard's prayer over the toilet in the bathroom. If if you you know if you, get, if you if you cover me, Lord, if you get me out of this, I swear I'll never get drunk again. I'll never drink again. And of course, you uh, empty the contents of your lunch, and you fall asleep, and you wake up the next day, and usually by Monday or Tuesday, you've completely forgotten. And then the next weekend, you do it again. Yeah, and ironically, if you don't get drunk, you don't end up back in that posture of prayer again. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? It's funny how that works. So. It's it's a strange thing to be young and and stupid as I was like that mm. to to barter. That's what we think though. That our, we think our relationship with God is a barter system. It's a negotiation. Yeah. It's a negotiation, contract negotiation. If I do this, you do this, and then it's the "oops, I did it again" syndrome. You find yourself mm. in the same position. You find yourself in the same situation with the same people doing the same thing you promised you'd never do again if you got you out of it. Now what? How many times can you do that before you just give up and realize either A, my prayers aren't being answered, or B, there's no God? Or until God just says, you're fired. (laughs) Right, you're fired. (laughs) And preaches the gospel to you and actually converts you and makes you a Christian. Yeah, that's right. One of the worst prayers I ever uttered was, um, I took you to the cathedral in St. Paul when you visited, right? Mm -hmm. And that was the first church service I formally went to after I came to believe in God. And it was Good Friday at the cathedral in St. Paul. And it was obviously majestic and impressive because it's Good Friday and you you got the gold LeMay outfits and the the full Vegas floor show. Yeah, that's right. And I sat in like the sixth or eighth pew back from the altar and, which is still 50 yards from the altar. But (laughs) I remember praying, Lord, don't do this to me and then just leave me here to sit in a pew for the rest of my life. Hmm. That was a terrible prayer on my part because... Ta-da, here I am. <laughs> I'm a pastor now. Sometimes God answers your prayers. <laughs> it's like Habakkuk saying, I'm going to go up on my roof and wait for you to prove me wrong because I think you're a liar. I don't think you're going to save us. Yeah. yeah, truth or dare here. And then God proved the prophet wrong, <laughs> that he is faithful to his promises. And maybe that's not what Habakkuk actually wanted from the Lord was for him to show up and be like, oh, all right, you want me to be the warrior that I am? That's fine. Clear the decks. I'm going to make space. Mm. that we have this very, I think we do anyways, again, because of, I think of the comfortableness of our, our lifestyle in this culture, we, and this comes out of the industrial revolution, the enlightenment and the softening of God to make him more palatable for women and children at that time. And it's just carried over to the present tense that you read the Psalms, for example, but you read the whole Testament. God is anything but a pushover. Mm. In fact, he is often and usually referred to as a mighty warrior who is faithful, loving, and kind. Or as I say, he's a compassionate savage. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna. I was trying to think of an analogy. It was kind of like, you know, the the king, the warrior, the the father, and uh, 
uh, what else, all mixed together. Well, there is in one sense that the Lord God is Clint Eastwood in The Unforgiven. (laughs) That he is a jealous and vengeful God. He says that I am a jealous and vengeful God. I don't like sharing you with other gods. Mm -hmm. And if you decide to chase after other gods, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill your family. I'm going to kill your dog. I'm going to burn down your town because that's the way I roll. And we Mm -hmm. see this in Exodus when they enter Canaan. God says, I'm going to give you victory. I'm going to smash your enemies. Now... Take nothing from them, because that's not the point. We're not here to rape and pillage and plunder the village. What I'm pointing out is that their gods aren't real. Mm. I am. And so we see this then when they charge up the hill and attack a smaller village, that they're overwhelmed and they're beaten back and they're defeated. And the question is, God, where were you? You're you're the warrior. You're the tip of the spear. And God says, I didn't tell you to attack those people. Who told you to attack those people? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that yeah. I, for me anyways, again, piety, speaking since we're on the topic of piety, in my, my personal piety, the sacramental piety that I discussed at the beginning, the, the gift of my piety is what it is. It's a gift. It's not mine, but it's a gift. That mm-hmm. for me being an Old Testament nerd like I am, that's something that's very comforting to me, actually. That when I pray, Lord, save me from my enemies, when I make the sign of the cross to remind myself I'm a baptized child of God, my father is a warrior hmm. and he will overthrow my enemies, starting with their gods. Yeah. And and chief enemy is ourselves. <laughs> well, exactly. There's that. Well, All that's offense. the scary thing that St. Augustine said when he prayed, he would always pray, Lord, take away you know these sins, but just not quite yet. Hmm. There's certain sins I kind of like. Yeah. Which is funny that he, Augustine, being pious himself, said there's certain sins he likes. I would, I would argue, apart from Christ, I like all my sins. <laughs> yeah. Because they're mine. Well, yeah, I picked them out. I mean, <laughs> I looked in the, in the catalog and I, I chose right. them. Right. I want two of these and six of those. And uh, yeah, exactly. I have six box tops and 25 cents, so I want you know, all this stuff. Well, you know, if the, if the Bible were, uh, what, what do they say, uh, basic instructions before leaving Earth? Yes. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, I know, but but if you look, the basic instructions are like don't eat that tree, right? You know, don't do don't uh, don't pillage those people, you know, don't destroy the city or whatever, or destroy the city. Very basic instructions. Essentially, the the Bible is me talking to my kids. Don't put that in your mouth. No, don't don't put that in your mouth. You don't know. No, that's been on the floor too long. Don't put that in your mouth. Okay, you can eat that, but it's been but on the floor too long. Oh, that's the whole Bible in a nutshell. Don't eat. Don't put that in your mouth. Oh, come on, really. Yeah. We really? talked about this. What about the five-second rule? Mm-hmm. But, but Lord, no, no. Spit it out, it's spit it even, out. It's not even a very good rule. No, it's not. <laughs> we only took enough for today and tomorrow. I said just enough for today. That's why it's moldy and gross. Stop doing that. Yeah. You but, people. <laughs> but that also brings us back to declining in the whole spirituality of the Lutheran is it's located in our mouth. There mm, are things that sure. we do put in our mouth, the body and blood of Jesus, and there's things that we're not supposed to put in our mouth. That list is very long. Don't stick your tongue on a flagpole in winter. It's that kind of stuff. Yeah, right. So the small catechism, Kleinen continues, is Luther's handbook for family devotions. It's his textbook for evangelical piety. Keyword, evangelical piety. Mm, Gospel-centered. Gospel-focused, gospel-centered, Christ-cross-focused, that Mm -hmm. our focus is on Christ's body and blood. It is on him crucified for the sin of the world, the Lamb of God. And that our piety is only evangelical. When it is gospel focused, mm-hmm. when, when it's, it's driving, driving right. us to, 
to Christ. Like we mm-hmm. talked about in the Law Gospel episode, Walter talking about the gospel must be preeminent. Mm. It must prevail over every word, even God's own word of law. The gospel yeah. must be preeminent. That our piety, our piety, if it is truly a gift that is given to us from our Heavenly Father, must then be evangelical. Because God does not want to be preached, revealed, or worshipped apart from Jesus. Mm-hmm. So apart from Jesus, we're just guessing. <laughs> we're just walking around licking things, going, is this my piety? Mm, nope. Does is this my happy? No, yeah. exactly. Like, that's a pine cone. Spit that out. <laughs> like, hey God, look over this way. What do you think? Right, exactly. Mm, no. You can put lipstick on a pig. St- still pig. <laughs> right? Mm. It's like my dog last night, my English Mastiff, uh, finally is warmed up to our baby. Uh, and uh, oh, nice. the problem is that my Mastiff's tongue is the size of my baby's head. <laughs> so when the Mastiff licks the baby, there's a moment of mutual curiosity and appreciation and admiration and adoration, and then just total revulsion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think for the Mastiff, she's thinking, I can't eat this. This tastes terrible. <laughs> and for the baby, just what just happened to me? Like, what was that? <laughs> Like, <laughs> new sensory experience. It is. Like, this doesn't look like anything else in this room right now. And the tongue, what was that? So, so she's already had her first bath then. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. There you go. So like a handbook for tr- the training of an artisan, the, the small catechism of Dr. Luther gives instruction in the rules and practices of the Christian life. But that those rules and practices, much like the Apostle Paul says, if we're going to talk about law, let's talk mm-hmm. about the law of grace. Mm-hmm which is the end of law as accusation. That Paul is not saying that grace is a law, but rather he is mocking and satirizing his opponents who want to turn the gospel into a new law. And that the rules and practices for the Christian life are rules and practices that point us to Christ. (laughs) Yeah, lead us to and give us. Exactly. Like we were talking about in the beginning – what Kleinig does in his commentary on Leviticus is he clears away everything that gets in the way of us recognizing in Leviticus Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's the and so when he talks about the rules and practices of Israel and the sacrificial cultists and the priestly cultists, the Levitical priesthood, and the worship of Israel, he's not pointing us to the rules and practices for how to be more orthodox liturgically. Well, you have to wear this breastplate and it has to be made out of 80% mm-hmm. gold and 70, you know, at least kind of, no, you have to pinch it just so and scream into the chalice at this volume and so many decibels, <laughs> but rather no, the rules and practices of the Christian life are what's getting in the way of Jesus being delivered pro me for me. Mm. Yeah. Right. So then Kleinen continues, the core of each section of the catechism is a foundational scriptural text for recitation and memorization. Those texts do not just give God's foundation for the practice of faith and love in the Christian family, but they also consecrate the life and work of all of its members. I'm sorry. They also consecrate the life and work of all its members do as they say. It's an awkward sentence. I think it's missing a word. Yeah, I think so. But this is the the key point that that the really savvy Lutheran scholars have, have, key point that they pointed out, point two, is Luther famously took the altar out of the church and put it in the home. Mm. That you didn't just have to go to church to be a Christian anymore, but rather that being a Christian started in the vocation of being parents, children, families. That in the late medieval system, priests were the top, a state, the the bestest vocation, the highest vocation, then politicians, then parents. That being a parent in the late medieval system was the lowest station 
And that includes your vocation as pig farmer, uh, uh, painter, whatever it was that you did. That was all included in kind of the household vocation of parenting or authority. And that being a politician, ruling over others, whether you had a small estate, you were a baron or a duke or something like that, a feudal lord, or whether you were a king or an emperor, that was... As that was the highest earthly estate, the highest earthly vocation. And then priestly vocation was the best of the best. What Luther does that is probably one of, in my opinion, one of the most radical things he actually does do is he flips that upside down and says, no, the highest vocation, the most godly work is as parent because, and this is so bright, this is so Luther, mm. that there are no politicians or priests without parents. So right. how, how do parents not get the highest ranking in this, in this whole hierarchy of what's important, what's not, what's godly? It's so just pastoral. Well, no, that's yeah. stupid. There are no politicians or priests without parents, so obviously parents are more godly. <laughs> He's not denying the office of the, of the holy ministry no. or denying um, you know, the secular vocation of, of ruler. Right, right. But he's no. saying that they're servant to the, to the parents, right. the father. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. That the parents exist to bring forth the politicians and the priests. The politicians exist to protect the preaching of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And then lastly is our spiritual well-being. So you have mm-hmm. the fact that we're brought into this world, this is our household, and then once we leave our house and we go into the broader community and world, that's where the politicians and politics comes in. And then outside of the broader world, there's the spiritual reality. And the spiritual reality, capital S spirituality, spiritual reality, spirituality, is that's the area of the pastor, the priest. In relation to my vocation as pastor, I do not interfere with the business of the church because I'm called to take care of the worship of the church. And there are other adults who are, are called the church council who are responsible for the business of the congregation. Mm-hmm. I can render my opinion. I can even offer a biblical quote or a theological quote when <laughs> asked or called upon, but that ultimately the business of my church is just that it's business. It's not a matter of salvation. Okay. If you don't want to mow the grass, that's not going to jeopardize your salvation. It may cause people to think the church is closed and they're not going to stop on Sunday. So maybe we should talk about that. But nonetheless, on the other hand, if you tell me that we don't need the sacrament every Sunday, we need to have a conversation about that because I want to know what's your reasoning for that. Or we don't really need to emphasize baptism or we don't have to preach the gospel every sermon, do we? Like those kinds of things. Matters of worship, matters of salvation, third article gift stuff. That Luther is just being eminently practical and he's moving out from where life starts and then out into the world and then out into the higher reality, the greater reality of what does it mean to be in Christ? I know. We, I think we've talked about it before, maybe on our previous podcast uh, iteration, whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> generation, um, that the catechism uh, is given to the parents to teach the children. And that was one of the really astounding things that happened to me right at the beginning of the ministry, was that uh, you know I had, a, I had a parent who said, no, the, the job of teaching the catechism, that's given to you. You're supposed right. to teach them. I'm like, mm, no, I, I expect them to come knowing the catechism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, what do you mean? It's like, I'm just here to examine, to review, to teach, you know, yeah, fill correct. in the blanks as needed, you know, whatever's weak, you know, that kind well, of stuff. The thing is, too, uh, just a, a sidebar, for those who listen who think that kids nowadays hmm. <laughs> or kids churches know. nowadays, uh, Luther complained about people not knowing the catechism before, during, and after he published it. Right. It's not as if Luther published the catechism and all of a sudden Germany was catechized and all of these Lutherans were just 
doctrinal, they were just doctors of theology all of a sudden, and they were just killing it. Uh, if that were the case, uh, Wittenberg wouldn't have become Calvinist by the 1580s. Mm-hmm. And there wouldn't have been the Forty Years' War and other things. No, uh, that uh, every generation thinks that the kids in their generation are uneducated, illiterate, don't want to learn this stuff, don't want to memorize kids these it. these days. Yeah. Parents are lazy, don't want to bring their kids to church. Luther actually complains, right, about mm-hmm. now that they've got the gospel, they become even lazier than they were before. <laughs> yeah, Saxon Visitation Articles, right? Right, in the Saxon Visitation Articles, they used to at least come to church four times a year when it was a law, but now that we've <laughs> abolished the law, they don't come at all. <laughs> people get drunk on the way to church, people get drunk on the way home from church. Like It's worse, he says, I preach the gospel, they become so uh, libertine, so licentious, they're just completely out of control. But then when I preach the law, they become so self-righteous and pietistic that I can't hmm. even stand to be around them. And can't that's, win. we can't win. And that's really when he says that he wishes he could go home to Erfurt and never preach again. Hmm. Just disgusted. So it's not, you know, again, don't get twisted. Our generation isn't any better or worse than the generation that Luther published the catechism for in the first place. Every generation is in the same situation because we're all sinners. That part doesn't change. Mm-hmm. And we all fight against catechesis because what old Adam wants to get closer to Jesus? None of us do. Right. Hence, hence the emphasis on recitation and memorization. Exactly. Exactly. You know, not that it's a magic formula, but it, but it is a discipline. Very much uh, so. Right. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a discipline against the old Adam. Right. Well, and that's, Mm -hmm. this comes up particularly for me in confirmation when I start teaching on the Lord's prayer. Mm, right. Kids don't really see the point. <laughs> and obvious, a large, obvious, I should say, obvious to me, a large part of that is because their parents don't pray. <laughs> uh, don't teach them to discipline prayer. They don't pray before meals. They don't pray in the morning or at night before bed. It's not a discipline. It's not a practice in the household. And therefore, when they come to me for confirmation and I say, we're going to learn the Lord's, the Lord's prayer, the first question I ask is, why do we pray? We're baptized, right. all of our sin is forgiven, we're promised a resurrection from the dead and eternal joy with Jesus, why bother to pray then? And every single time the answer is, well, we have to because God commands it. Yeah. <laughs> it and then when they get older, that. it's because we need to manipulate God to do what we want them to do. Exactly. The older you get, the, the craftier you get with your prayers. <laughs> I'm, not, yeah. I'm not saying outright I want you to buy me a new Cadillac, but I am saying I need a new Cadillac. <laughs> That's right. And we just, yeah, we just learn to choose our words better. We're not, it, I tell this story when my uh, oldest, he's 15 now, when he was a baby, we were at line um, at the grocery store. And my son pointed to the woman in front of us and said, why is that woman burned? And she's a black woman, right? Hmm. And it just, again, I mean, as you noted, uh, coming to visit me in Minnesota, this is the land of the Nords. This is, this, <laughs> it's just, as you said, I've never seen so many blonde people in my life. <laughs> when you live in Minnesota, especially if you live in, in not necessarily, even the suburbs, the suburbs are extremely Caucasian in Minnesota, the upper uh, Midwest. It's rare that you see more than one black person or Indian person or Mexican at a time unless there's some work being done somewhere. And again, I'm not making fun of Mexicans. I'm just saying that's the reality of living in Southern Minnesota is if there's five or 10 Mexicans in one place, they're definitely doing work. Unless for some strange reason you end up in the trailer park. That too. Yeah. The trailer park, Viking Terrace. Exactly. Shout out Mm -hmm. to Viking Terrace. Um, That it's just rare. And and I really hadn't thought about it because it doesn't really come up on my radar, but my son being two or three at the time, Mm. he just really went off cognitively. Hey, 
that woman in front of us is burned. And she turned around and well, I, and I said, she's not burned. That's the way God made her. And then um, he said, well, why would God make her that way and not like us? And I said, well, because God's an artist. And just like nice. every artist, every single piece of art that he makes is different and beautiful and unique from all the other works of art, but it's still the same artist that makes all those works. And then she turned around and she was smiling and, and she said, yeah, God made me beautiful. That's why I'm black. And, <laughs> you know, that could have gone so many different ways, but thankfully yeah, right. she was very kind and understood this is a three-year-old, a two-year-old. And my explanation was a winner for her. It was a gold ring. But mm-hmm. you don't really think about those things until it happens. And that's where your confession comes out vocationally. Then how do you point to Christ? How do you point to the word that creates all things? And how does that influence, how does that determine your children's piety going forward then? And those simple little exchanges like that become the building blocks, those little Lego pieces that Mm. eventually form a Death Star. Shout out to Spider-Man Homecoming. (laughs) (laughs) Is oh, you it, got through it, it now. Is it sad that the most upsetting part of that movie for me is when he drops the Death Star? I'm like, why, why dude? Why? Just no, well, no. Because you know there were like 20 people that spent hundreds of hours putting that together just so they could drop that in the movie. And by the way, how many Death Stars did they have to assemble for that one scene so that they could do that multiple times? Because hmm. you're, you're basically, t- well, I don't know, Tom, what's his name? Uh, forget his last name. The actor. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking you know, about. He's still kind of a child actor, right? So... You know, he's probably not going to hit it every time. I think he's like 13, 15, maybe 16. I don't know. He's pretty young. Maybe he's older. Young people are going crazy right now. These two old guys, they don't know what they're talking about. They're so out of touch. I was going to, you know, I just watched Skull Island with my kids. That's Tom Hiddleston. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that's the Tom on my mind. But uh, what is his name? It's coming to me. Tom Holland. That's it. Holland. That's right. Tom Holland. But uh, no, his, his friend in the, in the movie is the best part of the whole movie. Is oh, yeah. it Ned? Ned. Yeah, Ned. 1996. Actually, he's like 21. Look at that. Yeah, no, he's an adult. He's an adult. He's an adult. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way it works. That way you don't have to follow the child actor rules. Oh, nice. There's, certain hours that, there's only certain hours that children can work in Hollywood, and then they have to go to school and stuff. So you just hire someone who looks like they're 60, and then you can just film through the middle of the night and do all that stuff. It's called the Jackie, Jackie Coogan Law. I didn't know there was such a yeah. thing. goes back to Jackie Coogan, who was a part of, he was a famous child actor in the 20s and 30s, and his parents just robbed him of every dime he had. <laughs> and so as an adult, he sued his parents, sued his manager, sued the studios for robbing him, essentially, of all of his money. Because at the time, he was a child star in the sense of he, in, you know, the equivalent today would be he made hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah as a child star and got zero of that because his parents just took it all. So he sued them. And that's when this law then was invented to protect children from parents and managers and so forth, taking advantage of them. Makes sense. Yeah. So bringing it back around, then the core of each section of the catechism is foundational scriptural text for recitation memorization. Those texts do not just give God's foundation for the practice of faith and love in the Christian family. They also consecrate the life and work of all of its members in what they do and what they say. We talk about this in terms of the liturgy, that when you spend enough time with the liturgy, it becomes your language. It becomes the language of your piety. It becomes the language of your faith. And no matter where you're at, then you can say, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. You can sing holy, holy, holy. You can sing the Sanctus. Um, You can 
pray the post-communion collect. You can do all of those things because it's there. It's in your mind. It's your piety. It's the foundation. It's the building blocks of your confession. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the catechism. That's why I tell people when I pray or when I speak and I quote the catechism, I always quote the, the blue catechism from the 40s, 42. Yeah. Because that's the first catechism I, I read and it's the first one I memorized. And at least for me, mnemonically, that antiquated language sticks. Yeah. It doesn't get cluttered up with all the other languages running around in my brain. Whereas the newer catechisms, I teach out of them because I teach out of the LSB, the catechism in the LSB. I just, I can't do it. It's you have just, to read along with the kids. Yep, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And again, it's not a lack of con- conviction, devotion, laziness. It's just I memorize it one way. And I'm at a point in my life where I'm old enough to say, I don't need to learn it a different way. I'm good. <laughs> if you yeah. want to get in an argument, I can quote it in German too. What do you want? <laughs> yeah, right. In fact, one of my favorite things as a pastor is when widows in particular, they give me their catechisms from when they were confirmed. And they used to be bilingual. And they're German English catechisms. I love those catechisms hmm. because fun. you can go back and forth if you know the German and just look at how the German is laid out versus the English translation of the German. And this is something that's interesting as a translator is when you have an immigrant population whose first language is German, their translation of the German in English is much closer to German. Than it is mm-hmm. to English. When you sure. look at more modern, more recent translations with people that are not native or second generation German speakers, the English translation is not one to one. It's not as close to the original language because it's just not native to the translators. And they're not thinking that. We, we often forget that when you speak a language, you think a certain way. <laughs> That's right. And uh, I was listening to an interview the other day. They were talking about the Aztecs and how the Aztec language and their calendar and their understanding of the cosmology, the universe, and so forth was so different than the way that we speak and think that for us to try and understand the Aztecs, it's like the analogy I've used before. It's like a grasshopper trying to understand what it's like to be a person. Right. It's that it's not that we're we're both human beings, but the language and the thought process and the way of seeing reality is so different between the Aztecs and us that this is part of the trouble with translating their characters. Mm-hmm. Well, you that, can even see that in English too, right? Yeah. Or different, yeah, yeah, dia- different dialects or, you know, regional dialects are, they, they're <clears throat> attached to the culture. Mm-hmm. You know, like Very if you so. hear, if you hear a, somebody sing with a twang, you almost, you know, assume that you know where they're from. Oh yeah, then you find out they're from Alberta, Canada, or something. Right? What are you? It's not right. No, you're from the south. (laughs) Well, and even the way I learned Spanish, I learned Spanish as a missionary. I didn't know Spanish before I went to Mexico, Mm. and where I lived in rural Mexico, I didn't know I was learning a dialect of Spanish. So then, when I went to Guadalajara in central Mexico, which is like Chicago, Mexican Mm -hmm. version of Chicago, all of the people that I talked to knew where I learned Spanish at. Ah, Yeah, because they all said I spoke with an accent. And what was really interesting then is that through those conversations, what I came to realize was I had a prejudice Mm. against the way that certain Mexicans spoke Spanish that Mm. I had learned from (laughs) learning Spanish. So Mm. there's a a dialect of Spanish called Castilian Spanish Mm. or Castilian. And what Castilian Spanish is, is that they do this all the time. They list when they make their S's and it's, it's, you do it to affect, it's a sign that you're well, that you're a blue blood. Because in Mexican culture, historically, the closer you, your bloodline is to pure Spanish, Castilian Spanish, the better you are as a person. You're just, you're higher up on the social hierarchy. Wow. And so what poor people will do is they will effect, 
or the affect that Castilian speech pattern, that dialect of the Castilian Spanish. And what people where I learn Spanish from will do is they'll mock them. Because the thing is, the Roman Catholic priests will affect that Castilian twang in the mass. When they say mass, the Protestants will not unless they are trying to affect wealth. Because in the Protestant church, wealth, prosperity, gospel type of stuff, also the way you speak is a sign of your status. So for a poor Mexican, they don't affect this Castilian speech pattern. So I didn't even realize that it had affected the way that I think about other Spanish-speaking people (laughs) until other people pointed out, oh, yeah, you have a drawl. You you speak really slow. And I was like, oh, because – and they said that's what people that don't live in the cities, that's how they speak. They speak slow. And also where I lived, because there were so many Americans, Canadians, and people from the States coming down over the past 20, 30 years at this mission that I lived at, they just slowed down the way they spoke because they're speaking to stupid Americans who don't speak Spanish or have a very elementary grasp of Spanish. And so they had to slow down and speak slowly so that the Americans could understand what they were saying. And when they didn't want me to understand what they were talking about, they would just speak very quickly. So it, it is a very interesting thing that... It's not just a matter of translating the text into your own language and saying, there, I did it. Yeah, right. Luther thought the exact same way I think. He spoke the same way I speak. No. All of the histories, all of the theology, all of the translators of Luther are translating him into their own way of thinking, their own way of speaking, their own context. Right. And it should humble us. It should cause us to step back and ask the question, is this really what he intended? Is this the way that he thought? But a lot of times we just kind of co-opt him. (laughs) And co-opt our, our spiritual fathers and say, eh, they thought this way. <laughs> this is the way they talk because this is the way I talk. And then you get it's lost a, in the weeds. Yeah. It's interesting, too, that um, the way that we talk or, or, or our foundational texts, I mean, we're always going to have some. Mm-hmm, it's just course. a matter of what they are, right? You think about, like the old, uh, what do you want to say? The, uh, my father grew up on a farm, so he, he had all sorts of expressions he'd say, most of which are um, too crude to say probably on the air right. here. They're very earthy. They're very earthy, but in a way they were like religious piety, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because they, they did they did guide their life, you know, like when you want to talk about the usefulness of something, you know, he had an expression for that. And, uh, you know, so, so that guide, you know, as a farmer, you're always thinking about practicality and you're thinking about yes. um, uh, efficiencies and, you know, just trying, you know, highest yield and all those kind of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, because that's your, that's your vocation. But then you have, you have this language and this way of thinking and even like behaviors and things that you do, mm-hmm. like you milk at a certain time of day because that's when you're going to get the highest yield and all these things. And you're guiding it. And uh, even re- everybody wants to be religious about, you know, s- their stuff, right? Yeah, it's right. just, what, you know, whether it's, uh, it's a, around the gospel or it's around whatever it is, sports, work, um, family. Mm-hmm. You know? And well, you're going to have texts that fit in that, things that you say and do. It's a nice... Uh, segue into something else that we can kind of bring it back around mm-hmm. to what we discussed at the beginning that uh, sacramental piety is a very concrete it's a very real piety it has something yeah. an object to grab grasp a hold of to get a hold of you put it in your mouth it goes into your ear holes you, mm-hmm. you can put it in the palm of your hand it's very real and it's not this kind of mystery cult this mystery religion that doesn't live in your mind or your heart it, it's very concrete and real it's very objective it's outside of you and that as you pointed out for your father and so too with farmers that I know and that are members of my congregation, their, their life is very grounded in the concrete and real reality of what is happening 
mm-hmm. in front of them that they don't really have any control over what happens to their crop outside of planting it and harvesting mm-hmm. it. They can do everything they can, but blight, storm, whatever it may be, can wipe out an entire crop in no time. Yeah. One year they can get almost no yield. The next year they can get three times the yield. Well, they can go through years of just nothing. And that's also then the earthiness of of Hebrew piety, of Israelite piety. It's very earthy. It's very concrete and real. It's very right here, right now. Mm-hmm. And to the point that we were just talking about, or I was talking about regarding translation is, I think we do a, a disservice or we kind of impoverish biblical piety when we in kind of suck it into ourselves and make mm-hmm. it about what I think, what I feel, what I experience, my perception, what I think is right versus what I think is wrong. And that God is in my heart kind mm-hmm. of attitude or God yeah. has blessed me materialistically. And that's how I measure my progress, my piety, my growth, you know, piety gone wrong. But that the sacraments are very real, they're very concrete. And that the piety of the psalmist, go back to that, Psalm 103, for example, is very real. You will rescue me from all my diseases. You will not let me go down into the pit. These are very real things. They're very pragmatic requests that the psalmist is outlining here. And I think that's when we get lost is when we turn away from what is real, what is objectively real, and then say, okay, what, what can I do though? to make myself the subject of this conversation, to be the hero of my own narrative. And we always, of course, stand in the way of what is concrete and real about God, word, water, bread, and wine, Mm -hmm. because there's no room. He's a jealous and vengeful God. (laughs) There's no room for cohabitation. We're not going to, we're not sharing custody of the kids here. Yeah. Right. Once you're baptized, there is no shared custody. There will be no visitations. You're Mm -hmm. mine. And I, he is faithful even when we are faithless because he cannot deny himself, First Timothy, that Lutheran piety is concrete and real. It's not esoteric. It's not some mystery religion. It's, you don't have to know the code. There's no secret handshake, no membership fees. And as you pointed out earlier, that's kind of the thing that freaks people out when they come to church yeah. and you tell them, yeah, you can believe you're here for all those things, but God's just going to give you the gospel. Mm-hmm. And your heart's going to be changed for sure from the spirit working through the gospel. It's just not going to be the change that you want or expect. It's like I've often said, if I could go back in a time machine 20 years and show myself to my 26-year-old <laughs> self, my 26-year-old self would probably jump off a cliff. I'd be like, really? Yeah. Five kids? Wait, yeah. a pastor? So we're not rock stars? <laughs> yeah, so just hang on and go for a ride. Right, exactly, exactly. Just, and don't even, you don't even have to hold on if you don't want to. He'll just pull you back in. Hmm. Do not get out of the boat. Never get out of the boat. Right. There's tigers well, in the jungle. Yeah. So you're talking about um, concrete reality. So baptism, obviously water mm-hmm. uh, and word. And even if you don't remember that because you were a child or you do because you're an adult or mm-hmm. a teenager or whatever. Right. Um, but that we're always drawing people back to that um, right. concrete reality by making the sign of the cross, by by invoking God's name, which is given right. to us in baptism. Right. Um, but then what, what did Kleinick say? Oh, consecrate the life and work of its members. Exactly. And, and what they do and um, exactly. what they say. Well, and that's yeah. when people ask the question, why do we make such a big deal out of the sacraments? Why do we make such a big deal? Because it's the reason we make a big deal out about a baptism, for example, is because it's concrete and it's real. Mm-hmm. You can go to the actual font, you can go to the water, you can touch the water, and you can make the sign of the cross with the water to remind yourself that you are a baptized child of God. That's real. And that's the point. (laughs) 
It's objective. It's outside of yourself. It's concrete. It's real. You can wrap your hands around it. Um, what, and, did, what, did, what did Luther say in the baptism, right? You know, that he cons- consecrate, this is in the prayer, they consecrate all waters to be a saving flood. And I was like, what are you getting at? It's like, well, when you're taking a bath, it's not a baptism, but it does remind you of your baptism, right? Exactly. Or a shower or whatever. I mean, a washing of rebirth and renewal. I mean, all water uh, gives you life. You, right. It should, re- like, can you have that cool water on a, on a hot summer day? That should remind you of your baptism. Right. Well, and going back to what I said about perception versus reality, that the reason that this, this quantum physicist was explaining this, that the reason we don't change all of our textbooks so that an atom doesn't look like a solar system, but it actually looks <laughs> like what it is, is because, one, it's really complicated. It costs a lot of money. And most people are happy with the perception that this is what an atom is, right? Versus the reality of it. Likewise, the reason I make such a big deal out of baptism, Lord's Supper, the reason that that's where our piety is located is because it is reality. And your perception of it doesn't matter. Hmm. It just doesn't. Is means is. The Lord said, this is my body and blood. How does that work? I don't know. It's a mystery. Hmm. I don't understand how a being that fills the entire universe with his presence fits himself in this bread and wine in such a way that he's present at every altar simultaneously, giving himself without giving any of himself. And this Pretty is crazy. It is crazy. This quantum physicist he explains that electrons move forwards and backwards simultaneously because they move so fast. <laughs> that if you fired an arrow, for example, in an easterly direction, if it was traveling with enough force, with enough momentum, it would go what it would come back around from the west. And it would just keep going in circles. And if it went fast enough, it would be imperceptible to us whether it was going forwards or backwards, east or west, because it would be going so quickly. And that these electron clouds move so fast through space that it appears to us that they exist both in space and outside of space and in time and outside of time and moving forwards and moving backwards simultaneously. Does that mean that's what is happening? No, it's, but that's all we can see. <laughs> And so all we can do based on our sensor, the sensory input is to say, kind of looks like it's moving forwards and backwards to me, Chip. What do you think? I got to agree with you, Sam. I think it's moving both ways simultaneously. That defies the laws of physics. Well, it defies our perception of physics, but that doesn't mean that it's defying the law of physics. Likewise, it may look like plain water, but that's just your perception of the water. Right. The fact of the matter is that just as in the beginning when the Holy Spirit hovered like a mama eagle over her nest over the water over the abyss and made something new, that's what's happening at this font. Something new is happening. Well, it's only a sprinkling. And? Yeah. <laughs> so what? <laughs> whether it's a flood in an ocean, whether it's a river, whether it's an irrigation ditch, whether it's a sink, whether it's a font, if you have the Word of God, water, and the Holy Spirit present, it's a baptism, Jack. Hmm. Period. Well, this doesn't even look like real bread. How can I believe this is the body of Jesus? Well, as Dr. Luther says, pluck out your eyes and shove them in your ears if you want to see Christ in the bread. Hmm. Close your eyes, and then you'll see. That's what faith is. <laughs> faith is yeah. what? Things not seen, hidden things. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we err, we go wrong with our piety when we start demanding signs <laughs> outside of the sacraments. Once we go outside the sacraments... We go away from the water, we go away from the body and blood, we go away from the the preaching of the gospel. What do we fill that space with? Well, like you said, whatever tickles us, whatever our personal project is. Some people turn their suffering into their own personal salvation project. Other people turn their success into it, right? 
And because of that, everything kind of ends up going sideways. We get in arguments. We split churches into other churches. Mm. I read a statistic the other day of how many Christian denominations there were in the world. Oh. It is stunning. It's like 23,000 or something. Nice. I mean, like literally, it was a crazy amount. That I was like, oh, probably like one or 2,000. They're like, no, it's over 20,000 different Christian denominations. Now, again, some of those are probably a guy sitting yep. in a in a in a shack out in the woods somewhere with two other guys that live nearby that register so they don't have to pay taxes. But if you think about that, there are over 20,000 Christian groups in the world right now. So if you don't think that, if you think your church split is bad, just imagine that. And you go anywhere in America today, especially small town America and walk down main street, how many churches are there in that town? And then you look at the population of the town on the sign when you drive into town and you wonder how can there possibly be enough people in this town to actually fill all of these churches on Sunday morning. Like, how does that happen? But it does. Because each one has a different version of the truth. There's something for everybody. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. There's something for everybody. It's a smorgasbord. It's an old right. country buffet of piety. <laughs> and that's what upsets people about Lutheran. This is why Lutherans fall into the ditch of Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, Baptist theology, because... There's something other than just plain old, plain Jane, word, water, bread, and wine to hold on to. Right. And if you live long enough, it gets kind of ordinary. Oh, I was baptized 80 years ago. What else have you got for me? Well, we have the Lord's Supper again this Sunday. Yeah, I'm good. I've been doing that since I was 15 years old. Yeah, right. Right? Not very well, well, but whatever. Right, exactly. Exactly. I'm sorry that you couldn't get it till you're 15, but... um, yeah, not not well, obviously, but it, it is how the challenge pastorally, I think, is, and even for parents, is how do you teach your children to have regard for something that's so ordinary, and yet it's the most extraordinary thing that you'll ever do in your life. Hmm. It's well, it's like food. You you give your kids two pieces of bread to make a sandwich with. It's the most ordinary thing in the world. They hmm. don't think twice about that, and then no. they argue about who's going to for, get forced to eat the heel because no one wants the heel. <laughs> Versus any other place on earth, they'd be killing each other to get that heel of bread. Hmm. It's hard to teach people who are comfortable, who have grown up in that comfort and peace, which is, by the way, a gift. Let's not knock it. Not, not having to worry about being burned alive at the stake or being thrown to the, to the lions in the gladiatorial arena. It's kind of nice on Sunday to wake up and not have to worry about those kinds of things. Yeah, or or that ISIS or some radical Islamist group is going to come into your village and chop off all your arms because you went to the sacrament. Yeah, let's not complain too much. Right. I mean, they're they're killing they're killing they're chopping people's heads off for being baptized. It, it, like that's not on my itinerary Sunday morning. Hmm. The 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 worst thing I have to worry about is whether or not my shoes are where I left them, kind of thing. You know, is my is my t shirt clean? Um, I wonder how many days you just put on some slippers. I guess. Well, I mean, I'm only 50 feet from the front door, so... Right. You know, you make the best of a bad situation. But no, that the my list of stressors on a Sunday morning is Pluto to Mercury away from the stressors of other brothers and sisters of mine who live in other countries where this is yeah. a real threat. Yeah. We're just, just going to church is a death penalty. Right. And I think that's, that is why we argue so much in our culture about our piety. And why we feel it necessary to dictate other people's piety to them outside of sacramental piety. Outside of, well, is this evangelical piety? Well, yes. Mm. How? 
You're, you're constantly pointing your finger at other people, telling them how they don't measure up to some biblical, doctrinal, or personal standard of piety that only seems to have you as its benchmark for success. Right. It's like motivational speakers who have never accomplished anything in their life other than becoming motivational speakers. Yeah, they like the credential, right? Right. It's like, why, why are you a motivational speaker when you've not actually accomplished anything? It's like taking marriage advice from a Roman Catholic priest. Mm. Like, what exactly do you know about being married? I mean, do you read a book? You took some, some programs? You went to a seminar? But what he exactly read, do you know? He read Song of Songs. Right, right. When he was 30. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So jump ahead to the conclusion. Page 24, uh, like I said, in between 19, page 19 and page 24, uh, Kalani goes through and outlines the catechism and how each section of the catechism lays the foundation for our piety. And then at the end here, he says, the life of faith receives its shape from its location in Christ. That is evangelical piety. So the life of faith receives its shape from its location in Christ. For just as the Father gives his spirit through his Son to those who meditate on God's word, so by the Spirit the Son brings them to the Father as they pray with it. The Catechism, that is, or the Bible. In a sermon on John 1.50, Luther portrays this most vividly by linking the opening of heaven at the baptism of Jesus with the story of Jacob's ladder in Genesis 28.10-22. Since we are united with Jesus, we are located with him under an open heaven. And there, we hear the Father addressing us with Jesus as his dear children, which we were just talking about. And there, we, like Jesus and in Jesus, address God as our dear Father, that this is, we talked about this in previous podcasts, for the psalmist, sin and judgment is a, a narrow place where you can't move left or right, you can't turn your head either way. A wide open space is, mm. the, is the image of forgiveness and salvation. To be yeah. set in a wide open space, to stand upright and not be bent over, is a symbol of, as an image of salvation. Likewise, here, what Luther is drawing on is that an, a wide open heaven only exists in relation to Jesus. Mm-hmm. That, Otherwise, you're hiding in the bushes, right? Right. That I can, I've used this analogy many times that I'm only a husband in relation to my wife. I'm only mm-hmm. a father in relation to my kids. I can walk around and claim that I'm a husband and a father, but then that's just weird and creepy. But that really vocationally, the only way that I can understand what it means to be a husband is in relation to a woman that is my wife. But the only reason I can understand what it looks like to be a father is because I have actual children who call me dad. Mm-hmm. And that in the absence of those people, I don't actually understand what it means to be in that vocation. I, I can't possibly, because I'm not in that vocation. Mm-hmm. And I can theorize it, I can appreciate it, I can empathize, I can sympathize, but I can't know. Well, because you can't <coughs> practice it, right? Exactly, exactly. There's no children to care for, there's no wife right. to provide for. Yeah. Likewise, if you're not in relation to Jesus, you cannot in, know what it means to have an open heaven, hmm. which is just shorthand for God as Father. Mm-hmm. You you can't possibly appreciate what it means to be a beloved child of God if heaven isn't open to you. And the only way for that to be open to you is in an actual real relationship to Jesus. It's just kind of striking because isn't the Hebrew pose of prayer, hands open, eyes toward heaven? Yes. And the Christian exactly. one is, is has, or at least is hands now. Hands folded, head down. Hands folded, head down. So, right. you know, um, the Hebrew way of thinking is, you know, to receive and to look. To be wide to, open, you're right. Yeah, to receive salvation, I guess. Yeah, to receive, to receive exactly. To receive Not to be kind of closed in on yourself and I can't look up at heaven because I'm ashamed. Or, or I might get distracted by might get distracted Exactly. <laughs> Whereas for me, who I'm an artist, I can't close my eyes. My imagination wanders immediately. 
And I've prayed the prayer of the church so many times, I can be completely distracted, wander off, be thinking about Chuck Jones cartoons, and still pray the prayer of the church. Yeah. Which I'm not proud of. You've got statuary above your altar, so... uh, Exactly. And that gives you focus. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Or the crucifix. Yeah. Right. And this is when people dog on statuary, the the, the corpus on the crucifix, you know, imagery in the church, stained glass windows and whatnot... Listen, that's there not to for you to worship it. It's there for you to focus. <laughs> yeah, it's not there as a distraction. It's right. catechetically. Right. If if during the sermon you're staring at the stained glass window over my shoulder, which happens to be the chalice and the grain for the, the wafer, and you're focusing on the relation of my sermon to the Lord's Supper, which is about to come up, that's great. That's a mm-hmm. that's a pious distraction. That's good. That's sanctified mm-hmm. distraction. Keep at it. You can work with that. hundred percent. It's better than the kid who just runs up and down the aisle screaming. <laughs> <laughs> that's a different kind of pious distraction. Yeah. That's that's splitting your vocation right there. But nonetheless, that to have oh, that was your kid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, was that was that one of pastor's kids? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. So, yeah, to to be in relation to Jesus again is to be in a concrete and real relation mm-hmm. to God where he chooses to be found by us, which is in the waters of baptism, at the altar and in the pulpit. And that minus that, we start to speculate about God, who God is, what God wants of us, what God wants for us. And like you said, he's out there hiding in the bushes. Does he have a birthday cake or does he have a sniper rifle? I don't know. I don't know. And do you really want to take that chance? Hmm. You know, do you really want to put your eternal comfort and salvation on the line because you got a a theory? (laughs) Or do you want to know the heavens are open? God is your heavenly father. You are his dear child and you're baptized. Yeah, and it's interesting with the Jacob's Ladder, you know, the, the angels, um, Jesus talks about it in John then, the angels ascending and descending yeah. upon the Son of Man. Um, so is he saying Luther connects that to baptism? Uh, Essentially, yes. Yeah. yeah, to both, both really. Right. Yeah. yeah. Because what is he baptized for? Mm. And what are we baptized into except his death and his resurrection? Yes, all Died. righteousness, right? Yeah, dead for our sin, raised for our justification. So then uh, Kleinig, as any good Lutheran does, sums up his article with a quote from Luther. (laughs) Always good. Luther adds, and this is from Luther then, thus we still see the heaven open. Indeed, we ourselves live in heaven, because in relation to Jesus, you're in heaven. Although we in a sense still dwell on earth, in a spiritual sense, our names recorded among those of the celestial citizens in heaven. There we have our being before God in prayer, in faith, and in the divine word, likewise in the sacraments. There we walk in love toward our neighbor. There we grow in the word and in the knowledge of Christ. And we also increase in all things necessary for eternal life. This is our heavenly life begun here in faith. Yes, heaven is open for us. We live and have our being in heaven. We dwell there as citizens, even though we are still on earth, according to our physical body. Boom, mic drop. Yeah, Yeah, it's not necessary that our churches uh, be decorated like like we're already in the heavenly dwellings, but... Mm -hmm. uh, but it can be helpful, like the exactly. cathedral you're talking yeah. about, right? You know, right. Or when we conduct place. ourselves with with a liturgy, you know, fit for heaven, mm-hmm. rather than um, kind of just what do you want to say? Some kind of pious you know, piety that isn't not pious, mm-hmm. but piety that um, is just drawn from you know base creaturely kind of worship, right? You know, and not from well, the scriptures. The old way of of having that that um, uh, what's the word scallop architecture behind the altar in the old days where you have the mm. company of heaven, right? Mm-hmm. That that when you sang um, 
the song to, you're singing with sure. all angels, archangels, all the company of heaven. And they would kind of scallop out that area behind the altar, the wall there, and they would paint it with stars and with the heavenly host so that when you sang the song to, it reminded you, again, it focused you on the fact that you're not just singing with the people standing next to you in the church, but you're singing with the whole cloud of witnesses in Jesus Christ and yep. angels and archangels that all heaven rejoices with you that even though you're in the body in the present tense, you're already in the resurrection through faith in Christ. Yeah, and it wouldn't be uncommon if it was large enough then to also enter bodies, sometimes exactly. vertically, yeah, that's in right. those walls. That's right. <laughs> Especially the, under the altar, exactly. Under the altar or laid to rest on the sidewall. And, yeah, revelation, you know. baby. Mm-hmm. So there's, you're surrounded by a host of witnesses. Exactly. And the old churches that used to be in the middle of the graveyard. So you would have to walk through the graveyard to get to the, jo- the church. Hmm. That constant reminder of the resurrection. Uh, Kathleen Norris, she's a poet, author. Yeah. Uh, I don't. She's still around, I think. But she yeah, had an interest. Like. Yeah, she had an interesting interview I listened to a long time ago where she talked about um, the greatest sign I've ever seen of the resurrection is two old farmers leaning over a open grave in the middle of winter looking for the frost line. <laughs> you know that 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 that's piety in a nutshell, man. That's faith. Mm. Is you're, you're digging a grave in the middle of winter and you're looking down trying to find the frost line so you know how deep you can dig this grave. And these two old farmers are they're going to dig this grave. They are going to commit their their brother to the ground, whether it kills them, frozen mm. or not. That that is that is for her the image of the resurrection because it's two faithful Christians looking down into this hole, going, "Where's the body?" <laughs> you know, is that in one sense, yeah, they're trying to bury their their brother, but in another sense, if you look at it from like a top down view, there's an empty grave and these two people are looking down to the grave, and so for a stranger like her to walk up to the scene and be like, "What are you looking at? There's nobody in the grave," immediately it becomes this strong, this extremely strong image of the resurrection for her. Yeah. That that's what the last day is. Is us, it's us walking around, asking ourselves the question. Well, wait a minute. I was dead. Wasn't I dead? Wait. Where's my brother? Where's my sister? Where are my children? Where's my grandma? Hmm. You know who are you? Well, I I'm so and so. Oh, you're my great 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 grandchild that I never met, and now we've met, and now we can rejoice in heaven forever. Like those yeah. are the things that I look forward to. Yeah. One of the great practices in Russia is that, uh, or at least in Siberia, they can't bury anybody most of the year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so all the graves are above ground, and they surround them with a fence. And it's like, what, are you worried about them getting out or somebody getting in? It's, it's like, no, I mean, they just delineate the resting place of their loved one. But then they also, I don't know if it's from orthodoxy or if it's just a Russian thing, they, they go on uh, either the birthday or death date, I can't remember, mm-hmm. and they actually have a party on the grave. Yeah, right. You know? And so they, they don't forget they remember, but but they rejoice even in, in the midst of death, right? Mm-hmm. You know, just in that hope of the resurrection. Well, and that's, that's such an interesting thing you brought that up. That is, it, that points to the kind of piety we have that we have such a morose view of death, mm. such a somber view of death that we don't celebrate it. I have people in my congregation, for example, that have buried children, that have buried mm. husbands and wives. They go up once a week and sit at the at the at the grave, and they just talk. Mm-hmm. They pray, they talk. Again, they don't believe that the person that's buried there is listening to them, but it's their way of staying connected to right. this five-year-old that they had to bury yeah. <laughs> or their husband who died of colon cancer or whoever it may be. It's their way of staying connected. It's their way of focusing, again, their prayer on what matters, which is I live for the resurrection of the dead when I can be reunited with this person. 
And there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more weeping, no more sorrow. It's really a a belief in the words, like Jesus said, you know, she's not dead, she's sleeping. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And and for me as a pastor, I try and emphasize that the strongest Mm -hmm. in those conversations, that she's not dead, she's asleep. That our perception is that this person is dead, but the reality is she's just asleep. He's just asleep. And my job as your pastor is to remind you of that, point you back to baptism, point you back to the grounds of your piety, and also to remind you that every single image in the Bible of heaven is a party. Yeah. Every single one is a party. And that's what we're looking forward to, is that at the resurrection, it's not going to be just, all right, this is the chant. Here's This is the way we're going to do this. Okay, I, I noticed that you're not holding your, your right thumbs needs to be over your left thumb. You're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. <laughs> no, yeah. that, that heaven is a wedding feast without end. It's a party that goes on into eternity. I've been to get parties to- that have incense. <laughs> I'm sure you have. <laughs> <laughs> but that, think about the fact that the wedding feast of the Lamb includes angels, archangels, mm-hmm. the Son mm-hmm. of God. Mm-hmm. It includes every Christian everywhere that's ever lived, you'll be feasting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You'll be feasting with David. You'll be feasting with the prophets. I mean, it's amazing. You'll be feasting with people of your own family tree that you'll never, you've never met and never will meet in this life. Hmm. And all of that, you, you have no control over that. It's all out of your control. And that's the, that's the frustration of our faith that we see through a glass dimly. Mm-hmm. But it's also the joy of our faith that we look forward to and hope to the day when I don't just have a foretaste of the feast to come. I don't yeah. have to, in faith, celebrate the Supper of the Lamb with all of my friends and relatives who have passed, but rather it'll be concrete, it'll be real, and I'll be able to reach over and the person next to me, I can touch them and I can hug them and I can rejoice with them. And this is really the key point then to bring it all home is that for Lutherans, this is why our piety matters. This is what Kleining is pointing at. He's drawing this out of Luther's sermon. That heaven isn't a place we go to. Mm-hmm. Heaven is something, heaven is what comes to us. It's Jesus. Mm-hmm. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Literally, right at hand, right here. Here's my hand. I'm here. Wherever Jesus is at, heaven is at. Wherever Jesus is at, the kingdom of God is at. Therefore, that's why we call it the foretaste of the feast to come. Jesus has come. He is in the bread and the wine, his body and his blood. Therefore, heaven has come to us. That's mm-hmm. why we sing the holy, holy, holy with angels, archangels, all company of heaven. And that, that's why it's a foretaste of the feast, like I said. That we don't have to think about what it'll be like when we die and go to heaven. <laughs> that doesn't work that way. But rather, in this life now, heaven comes to us. That in relation to Jesus, heaven is open. The word of our Father is spoken to us. The Spirit, capital S, Spirit, comes to us. And that the Son gives himself to us as gift mm-hmm. and giver. So that our piety is passive, it receives, it doesn't take, and that in the present tense, we don't have to wonder what heaven is like, because it comes to us. He comes to us. Yeah. And the promises of today are the concrete reality of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. That even the sermon, even the gospel absolution is still us seeing and hearing through a glass dimly. Yeah. Because after I absolve you, you're still the, the same person you were before I absolved you. Outwardly, yeah. anyways, physically, in the flesh. And that can be difficult, super yeah. difficult to look at yourself and say, I got out of the boat again. I knew there was a tiger out there in the jungle, but I got out of the boat anyways. Right. Well, the problem isn't with God's word. It's not with the institutions um, that God has given in the sacraments, mm-hmm. right? right? It's not even with, with the pious practices that we've 
um, accumulated through through the millennia uh, yeah. attached to those things to teach you know to teach God's word or uh, to you know help administrate those sacraments. Right. But the problem is really just with us and our lack of perception, right? Which you you had exactly before. Exactly. It's kind of like in uh, what is it, the last battle in the Narnia series yeah. with with the guy that goes into the. Uh, it goes into the barn, right? And it's just dark, it's black, and yeah. uh, and that's where the you know the evil is. But then when the pious people go in, they go in and it's and they're already in heaven. <laughs> they're, they're in this wonderful place. And it's like, wait a minute, they went to the same they, what's the difference? One is blind uh, mm-hmm. without without belief, and the other sees because because of uh, they believe. Right. You know? Exactly. That's just it. Mm-hmm. So that is the end of the article. Uh, yeah. I got to get ready for jujitsu. So, is there anything that you need to say, or you want to say to sum up everything, or shut her down, or have we said all that needs to be said on the issue of uh, Lutheran piety? I think we've said it. Definitive statement, right there. There you go. We're done. Mic drop. This is the end of the podcast. We've we've done it. Yeah. We've ma- we are master artisans of the craft, right? <laughs> Uh, we're working. We're working. working. That's right. We're so on it. once again, the name of the article is Luther on the Practice of Piety by John Kleinig. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lutheran Theological Journal 48, uh, 2014, pages 172 through 185. We will include a link on the podcast page to the johnkleinig.com uh, so you can access the article and, and do with it as you will. But as always, we thank you for joining us. Come back next week for a brand new episode. And... Uh, Yeah, I hope we pass the audition. See ya. Do you like what you're listening to? Higher Things podcasts are free for you, but they aren't free to produce. Please consider supporting the Higher Things podcasts, as Lutheran as it gets, Gospeled Boldly, and The Black Cloister check out www.higherthings.org support for more information. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.